Hello and welcome to episode 402 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carasino. And we are coming to you from separate locations this week. I'm in Seattle, Washington, home of the four-time WNBA champion Storm in the news this week. We'll have plenty Back. to say about them. And I'm coming to your friend Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion Seattle Seahawks and hopefully an offensive coordinator eventually, maybe a defensive coordinator too. I mean, the defensive coordinator search is a lot less exciting given that Mike McDonald is going to be calling plays there. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not an extraordinarily long offensive coordinator search at this point. They've only had a head coach for a week, but it has taken some twists and turns. And we will get to all of those late, later in the pod, including today's news that Chip Kelly interviewed with the Seahawks. But uh Let's get into it, starting with our toasts this week. We have a farewell to Tristan's lookalike, former Sounder and Federal Way uh, native Kellen Rowe, who announced his retirement. Uh, Rowe was the number three pick of the 2012 MLS draft out of UCLA by the New England Revolution. He ended up playing 12 MLS seasons for four clubs, totaling 34 games and 39 assists in regular season play. Most memorably, well, with the Sounders, Played 79 minutes is an early sub for the injured Joel Paolo as they beat Pumas in the CONCACAF Champions League final in 2022. I didn't realize this until I looked it up as I was doing this research. Roe was also part of the U.S. men's national team for the 2017 CONCACAF Gold Cup title. So uh, one of the few Americans to win both the CONCACAF Gold Cup and Champions League. There we go. Uh, Roe limited to nine MLS appearances for the Sounders by injury last season and told reporters he couldn't get to where he needed to be physically in recent weeks leading to his retirement. All right. Fair enough. Definitely the only soccer player that's my look like. <laughs> yes. The main soccer player was your look like the main MLS player uh, staying on the soccer theme. A toast to Seattle being selected to host six games in the 2026 World Cup, including the second U.S. men's national team group stage match. Wow. Well, it's so that's not... confirmed. The that U.S. Is, confirmed. is coming here. Holy cow. We know which group that they are in, along with presumably Canada and Mexico. Uh, and knockout games in the round of 32 on July 1st and the round of 16 on July 16th. So they're going to be in a group with Canada and Mexico? No, no. Those, they're all in separate groups. What groups. Those are just those predetermined. Are in, those yeah, countries are in right now. We don't have to wait for them to qualify or for the draw, which are well down the road. We Italy still hasn't even failed to qualify for this World Cup. That's how wow. far down the road it is. The, the amount of teams that are hosting, I mean, US, U.S. and Mexico would probably make it either way. Throwing Canada in there, though, like how many teams could combine to host a World Cup for these automatic bids? I mean, it partially now this is easier because we're They're moving expanding to the pool, 48 right? teams Yes, from the previous 32. So Canada would have, I think, a much more realistic shot at making the World Cup uh, in the 32 team, at the 48 team era. I don't know if we know the the distribution of bids by confederation. This I, is actually, a, I feel like Italy is at least partially responsible for them increasing the bids. I I think money is responsible for them increasing the number money, of bids. Money is responsible, but also having, so, like, the Italian team is a valuable team to be in the World Cup. It, it's money 
but it's also like on a world stage, they want those teams in there. Now, Canada did make the World Cup in 2022, but that was just the second that the country had ever played. Their second ever World Cup? Who's the, yeah. is it uh, uh, Davies, right? Is Canadian? Alfonso Davies? Yeah. Uh, yes, Jordan Heidema's ex, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so this is a, this is a moment for Canadian soccer without question and, and certainly a big deal for Canada to be hosting as well. There's going to be, I believe, five games in Vancouver. So if you want to go across the border, a lot of opportunity to see matches here within the Pacific Northwest. There we go. Yeah. Yeah, he, he does play for Canada, not for uh, Ghana. Yeah, I knew that. Yeah. All right. Well, good for Canada. I'm mostly excited, though, for Seattle, Washington. That's right. Soccer City, baby. Uh, I mean, there are not that many cities around the country who are going to be hosting one of these. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Guaranteed to be hosting one of these. Do you think that'll be the most expensive ticket in Seattle sports history? This is a good question. I assume this year's MLB All-Star Game would have to be high up there. The checks out because I don't know. There's just been such an inflation in the ticket market. I think even since the Seahawks hosted the championship games, like those would have been like the most in demand games in Seahawks franchise history. I bet them hosting Russell Wilson on Monday Night Football was that pretty was high up one. there. Yeah. Mm, I don't know. Mariners playoffs, the first playoff home game in 2022. The only, the only playoff home game that they've played since 2001 that's that's another candidate i would the first cracking game i wonder how if that was way up there a lot smaller for sure yeah and they that's were playing a, vancouver that's a that's an interesting thought experiment about also I mean, it's no, not I'm a thought sure. experiment because the, the data does exist somewhere i was gonna say probably i'm, not I'm easier sure to that we will hear about this but like by the time we get to 2026 this is going to be setting records oh yeah Forgetting i i I did go on the FIFA website yesterday and register my interest in tickets for the World Cup. There we go. You're probably so, the only one. Hey, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm probably first in line. Yeah. <laughs> register oh, my look, interest. <laughs> the fabulous podcast is ready to be there. Let me tell there you. There we go. Do, do you have to, is that registering your interest for like the Seattle block of games? I believe so. Specifically that one. Okay. So. All right, lastly, in our toast this week, congratulations to UW forward Keon Brooks Jr., named one of 10 finalists for the Naismith Hall of Fame's Julius Irving Award, which honors the nation's best small forward. And never mind that Keon Brooks actually plays power forward, is does one of the other finalists, Gonzaga's Anton Watson, even less plausibly a small forward than Keon Brooks Jr. Well, those two players will have one thing in common. What other thing in common besides <laughs> not being power forwards that they're both going to be sitting home in March. Are we talking about Gonzaga later? Can we talk about this right now? Yeah, no, why would we be talking about Gonzaga later? Oh, I didn't get to watch the game on Saturday, but St. Mary's going into the kennel and defeating Gonzaga. They're not the last four in. They're not the last four buys. They're not the first four out. They're not the next four out. They are out the door. They are out of the West Coast Conference. They're gone. They're at complete irrelevance right now. And if you're the University of Gonzaga, Gonzaga GU, Gonzaga yeah, University no, Bulldogs, no. What, what are they? Gonzaga University, yes. Yeah, yeah GU. Yeah. And you don't even make the NCAA tournament. 
Good luck in the transfer portal after that. The program is finished. Calling it here right now. There, the threshold for Gonzaga has to be so much higher than anywhere else. The program's done. Good night. Goodbye. We got one thing out of Mike Hopkins, and that is ending Gonzaga for good. Do you know where Gonzaga ranks in Ken Palm right now? It doesn't matter where Gonzaga ranks in Ken Palm. I mean, it does to a degree because they will continue playing further games. Not and their chances of winning God, those games. February. There's so many games left. It They're really feels way. like March Madness is like right upon us. There are not that many on the West Coast. Uh, they they have seven regular season games remaining, but they are uh, seven conference games. They also play at Kentucky this Saturday. They, they are in... Oh, they'll get throttled at Kentucky. But I'm, they are I've, two spots higher than Kentucky and Ken Palm. Obviously, they're on the road, so they are where, underdogs in that one. Where are they at vis-a-vis St. Mary's? Six spots ahead of them. Sometimes there's glitches in the computer, six spots ahead of them, playing at home in the kennel, where I've been told Gonzaga doesn't lose. And somehow, the gales of St. Mary's, my gales of St. Mary's, <laughs> came in there and ended the program. St. Mary's started the season 3-5. and five. Since then, they are 15-1, and one, and their lone loss came at home to Missouri State. <laughs> <laughs> Not even Missouri Valley State. <laughs> That's why they play the games, I guess. The most important thing, though, is the Gonzaga student section throwing a bunch of stuff on the floor in the late stages of that game. Oh, classy. Classy stuff. Look, we stormed the field in Seattle when we beat our rival Oregon at home, but have fun throwing stuff on the court, Gonzaga. These motherfuckers weren't taught to lose. There's no grit at Gonzaga. You know what I mean? You want to know who knows how to lose? We know how to lose. We've been doing this forever. We were born into this. We know all about losing. We were born losers. Damn it. <laughs> born losers. That's what, it's funny. Uh, Mateo's like, Dad, what are you going to do if the Huskies go 0-12 again? And I'm like, I'm just going to continue to be a fan. I've been through one 0-12 season, and I can make it through another. Yeah. Start Nothing's going to change. Transfer portal. I'm not going to start cheering for Georgia, my guy. <laughs> Anyway, have fun in the NIT, Gonzaga. All right, well, <laughs> we have the start of Louise Seattle Burger Month this week with a Pyongyang fried chicken sandwich from Aisha Ibrahim of Canlis featuring their fried chicken thigh, burnt coconut aioli, sawasan pickled cucumbers, and scallions. Ibrahim says this chicken uses a paste made with burnt coconut, ginger, chili, garlic, onion, green onion, cane vinegar, Okinawa sugar, salt, and coconut milk. This paste is folded onto an aioli, into an aioli, which coats the fried chicken. This is a spicier and brighter version of the original uh, from the Philippines, where she's from, and includes pickled cucumbers and scallions. This sounds incredible. I know you're upset about the pickled cucumbers. You're wrong. Well, but... you'll just not order them. Oh, God. There's so much flavor in pickled items. You're losing so much of the flavor by not eating them. It's okay. like a trade without a grade. <laughs> Does it even exist? What about this a grade that's amazing, a regraded trade? Uh, well, we have... Well, I have not yet been been had this. I'm planning to get it on Thursday night to celebrate the passing of the NBA trade deadline and said grades. But... 
Talking Taco Time co-host Randy Cote ordered it up today on the first day it was available and hit up the group chat to tell us all how amazing it was. Well, it's funny. I'm on Instagram right now, the little boy's Instagram, and the first comment is from Randy Cote, who says this was all caps. So good. There you go. <laughs> so don't don't take our word for it. Take Randy's word for it directly on Instagram. Uh, of so course, funny. Chris Smith responded in the group chat by pointing out that the actual burger, because this isn't this isn't really a burger. It's a chicken sandwich. Is the funny thing about some of these burger month burgers, but there is one burger. That's available this week. And that's the Taco Burger is back Hello. at Taco Time Northwest uh, chain wide. So very exciting development. The Taco Burger 2.0 to, to be they, sure. They also announced what the uh, uh, gift was if you get every single one of the burgers. Oh, correct. Yes, it's a water bottle this year. So that looks looks very cool. I think this one looks amazing, though. Um, I, I I think you can look past the fact that it's not a burger. We can have. Oh, I'm not. I'm not saying it's not. I'm not going to eat. Eat it. You know, eat it heartily, happily. I'm just saying it is kind of funny that it's Burger Month and it's a chicken sandwich. Well, the one the burger last week looks really good. Kobe the pa- sauce. The pashu burger. Coleslaw. Yeah. Well, too late for that one. Still, it looks really good. It was very good last year. I can't remember where it ranked. I, I never went back through my rankings at the end of it, but it was quite good. They were so all who, very good. Who are the chefs? Can I not have a reel? Can I just see a still fucking photo? Jesus Christ. Okay. Uh, Aisha Ibrahim from Canlis. Connor Cronin from Darkolinos. Okay. Yeah. Well, well nepotism there. We, we didn't tease that, by the way, it's nepotism week in Seattle sports. <laughs> Look, every, just get used to it. Every week is nepotism week in Seattle sports. Oh, no. <laughs> Some of them are more more notably nepotism weeks than others, or or at least the start of the nepotism weeks in earnest. Janet Becerra from Pincita and Taylor Cheney from Yala. Okay. Yeah. So we look forward to eating along with this, of course, throughout Seattle Burger Month. I might have to get down to Seattle and get one of these. As you should. Uh, uh, are you moving on from food? I am. Did you have something else on the food topic? I think it's time, Kevin. It's very rare that you would address me by my my full given name. Look, we we've done this uh, uh, search for Seattle's best IPA for a long time, and I think it's time that we move that into endemic territory, right? I mean, I still plan to complete it. We just need a live show to within range. To I don't know if you're ready to announce anything there. I you said that as if I had something to we'll announce. We'll plan anything there, I guess. Is what I should say. <laughs> Need to find a better agent. Uh, too big, too busy booking sold out shows in Indianapolis, Indiana. Thank you. Uh, it's no dunks at All Star Weekend. But I we have we talked about our spring search. We have not. I think we need to do a spring search for something that I am actually participating in. Okay. And I think it's time. That we officially inaugurate. We did this. We did this during the dark years, offline when we hated each other. I think it's time to find Seattle's best cookie. I mean, I suppose so. Yeah, I was expecting that to be uproarious cheers. <laughs> I thought I was going to do the whole "Are you not entertained?" thing, like. <laughs> I mean, we've been like. Seattle's Best Cookie is unique in that it's a search that's been ongoing throughout the Pelton cast history. But I this is say. time. 
we break it to down. To actually bracket it. To, bra- not, to, to, to bracket it, but to also first go to these locations. There are a lot of new entrants well, if it's lately. Well, spring search, then we're going to have to bracket it. I, I mean, unless you well, want to search and then summer. bracket. Can, you're saying we have to start with a bracket? Can we eat the cookies first? I'm, I'm just saying, I don't know how long you think this search is going to take. Okay, well, just whatever we do, let's make the bracket as convoluted as possible, okay? <laughs> <laughs> we understand the assignment there. Search for Seattle's best cookies. <laughs> <laughs> now, we could discuss this. Seattle's best chocolate chip cookie? I, no, I mean, you know my philosophy on this. There's a lot of people that, you know, this comes up with pizza. They're like... I always get the cheese pizza anywhere I go because that's the measure of quality and I can compare it across all of them. And to me, my philosophy is a restaurant is only as good or as bad as its worst item. And <laughs> so we should find the worst item in <laughs> every location. Worst item? Yeah, you said it's worst item. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Sorry, that's not what I'm... It's I mean, that could be it. a measure to be it, like... It could be, yes, I agree. But that's not the measure I believe in. I believe it's only as good or as bad as its best item because that's what I'm going to order. And like, it doesn't matter, you know, how good all the other stuff might be at... Uh, at Loretta's, I'm only going to order the tavern burger there, so it's irrelevant to me. How, I think there's they... a lot of other really good food at Loretta's for order. So I'm, I'm sure there is. I'm just saying, I'm never going to order it. Uh, you're going to find the worst item. <laughs> <laughs> Search for Seattle's worst item, but we did donuts. <laughs> We did we did the donut search. It was great. We loved it. It was convoluted. Nobody got it. But I feel like we really nailed it. I feel like we really I see all these people talking about donuts a year later, right? I think Seattle Met still talking about donuts a year later. And it's just like boom, we did it. We did a thorough search. We found Seattle's best donut and Seattle's best donuts. <laughs> Somehow both. I also I think there was a listener in the uh, uh Discord who did uh Champions uh Champions Week of Seattle's best. I was wondering if we were, it, it was unclear whether it was a week or just all in one day, but uh, respect. <laughs> yeah, let me scroll up here a little bit. This was Matt M who did his on a search for Seattle's best food tour so far, Dojoy, Tacos, Chukis, and Quick Pack, and then later did Dozone. We didn't get a rankings from Matt. So well, they're pretty wildly them, different foods. <laughs> if you were going to do a ranking, but that's why it's a tournament of champions. I think, I think we do cookie and I think next spring we do tournament champions. Okay. The thing I've been considering is my tastes have evolved a bit. Wow. Pickles. No, no, Never. no. God. God. Oh, <laughs> I love that. So my favorite thing about the, the tournament of champions search that, uh, what did you say their name was? Matt M. Yeah. Matt M that Matt M did was that they just went to Dojoy, which thank you. Well, they, yeah, they did the donuts. Rather no, than we the didn't donuts. pick Dojoy for anything. Oh, Dojoy was oh, just in right. there. Yeah. I picked them. Well, that's, I think if there is a tournament of champions, it's not going to strictly be the champions because obviously then because of your mistake, Loretta's wouldn't even be in there. We revised it. We redid it. <laughs> no, I think you need it. And Loretta's are both in there. Uh, Quick Pack and Cookies are both in there. Tats is in there along oh, with Oh, God. Mona. Tats better be in there. Yeah. It's just all the stuff that I picked, or I guess didn't pick. <laughs> but the thing that... All the finalists. 
the thing that uh, my tastes have evolved on that I have yes. eaten more this year than already is February 6th. I've already eaten more this year than any other year in my life is pho. Oh. So. I Not as easy of a search to facilitate. I think part of what you liked about the donut search and the cookie search is similar is that you didn't have to like sit down and eat a meal at all these places. You can just go buy, get a cookie. Well, yeah, I don't. I don't think with my ten to fifteen children that I'm going to be able to go get like a nice bowl of pho anywhere. Not even. I couldn't even get one. No. Oh. Okay. Well, we'll table that for when the kid, the ten to fifteen children are all off to college. <laughs> all at Georgia, because um, UW went zero and twelve. <laughs> I am the only one who's still a fan. Katie and I are there too. <laughs> Wet and cold. Wet, cold, and losing because we know about losing. We don't throw shit on the field when we lose. We shake the goddamn fence. Or kick the garbage can. <laughs> or kick a garbage can, as you should. I still, the children were asking about that, and I was like, let me take you to the moment. Oh, no. UW, that was the 0 12 season that I kicked Correct. the garbage can. Jake Locker runs in for the game tying touchdown against ranked BYU, flips the ball in the air, not even that high. And they call a penalty on it. To me, we should have all been kicking a garbage can, right? It was if you were going to throw stuff on the field, that would be the time to do it. Exactly. But you know what, Gonzaga? We didn't. We managed to not. Sorry, Gonzaga, that you didn't win a national championship when you literally played no one every conference season forever. I'm sorry that you lost all those times and that UW ended your program. Some of us have stayed classy. All we do is celebrate on the field. For the record, I do not like the term classy and do not endorse... I mean, obviously, I don't endorse any about this take, but uh, do not endorse that in particular. You don't endorse anything about this take? So you no. think Gonzaga fans should have thrown things on the court? <laughs> no. Curious. <laughs> ESPN's Kevin Bell <laughs> in favor of throwing stuff on the court. <laughs> anyway, to, to me... Much like you should not storm the field or the court, nor sh or rush the court, <laughs> nor should you throw things on the field or the court. <laughs> the stands in the I will tell field you, must always remain separated. I will tell you this. The garbage can I kicked, completely off the playing field. That is that is 100% accurate. Completely separate from the playing field. That's it. It was a horrible call, and we lost the game because of it. And I stand by my decision as if it was a calculated decision. <laughs> when people, when people, we were there in the 0-12 season, and we weren't just there in the 0-12 season. We were there enough that I was upset enough about losing that I kicked the garbage can. Well, that was that was the second game of the season, and Jake Locker hadn't yet been injured. I know it was notably. early on. It was so early on. it seemed like that could be a crucial moment in the season back then. I was excited enough for the 0-12 season that uh, the Storm. I was sent to cover their final regular season game in LA that year. It was a Sunday afternoon. The Huskies hosted Oklahoma, number three Oklahoma, that Saturday. And I flew to L.A. the morning of the game and back that night instead of going and spending the night in L.A. so that I could attend that Oklahoma game, which UW lost. Uh, <laughs> Such a bad game. <laughs> let me review the notes here. 55 to 14. <laughs> Wait, who was there? Must have been somebody pretty good on that Oklahoma team. Sam Bradford was their quarterback. He went he 18 quarterback. 21 for 304 yards and five touchdowns. We saw a lot of really good players. I mean, oh, ob man. obviously you're going to in Pac-10, Pac-12. But, but like... back then, UW was like constantly hosting top 10 teams. I mean, their non-conference schedule that year 
was number 15, BYU, who finished 10 and 3. Number 3, Oklahoma, who finished that year 12 and 2. And then and then their other non-conference home game was Notre Dame. They played Notre Dame. That was that year? Yeah, uh, not the year they played at Notre Dame, which was we the played, next year under Sarp. We hosted Sarp. Notre Dame in 2007. No, in 2008. I'm looking at the schedule right now. We, so we hosted, we hosted Notre twice. Dame in Oklahoma the same year. Wow. In 07. No, sorry. 05. We hosted Notre Dame. My first year at UW. That sounds right. And it was Notre Dame and USC, I think, in back-to-back weeks. That was year like was Notre Dame Brady and USC. And, and Matt Leiner in back-to-back weeks. And Brady yeah. Bush. So, like, they used to have monster non-conference schedules back in the day. They were not back-to-back weeks, but they were back-to-back Lost home them games. Lost them oh, yeah. all. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's why they stopped scheduling them. Unfortunately, sometimes then they started scheduling Montana, and sometimes they lost that one. <laughs> lost yeah. those two, or scares from Eastern. Look, we got to see Cooper Cup and Vernon Adams, too. Oh. Uh, anyway, Gonzaga fans, that's how you lose. Point being, I think it's time. I think right. we, should, we should start this. Search I mean, Co- Costco cookie. has the cookie. We need to talk about it. We do. I agree. Taco Time has a cookie. Yeah. Like this, it literally, it has shaped up perfectly. All, all things have aligned. All the it's, it's, so we're going to have Randy and Chris on to talk about the Taco Time cookies? Absolutely we are. Look, have we not cultivated these relationships for a reason to lead us to this point? It's like this, this isn't an Indiana Jones or something, right? Where the light has to hit a certain point and then the thing happens. That is what has happened to us with the search for Seattle's best cookie. And at the same time, we've got real competitors now. Right? I Treat mean, Cookies is out there. There's there's two competitors in my mind. Maybe three. We, I, mean, I do love Hello Robin. Uh, but I've like personally conducted the search. That's the other interesting thing about this. <laughs> personally because, conducted the search. I don't know. There's a difference between doing a personal search and doing it when you're actually like critically judging these things. Yeah, I don't know that I'm going to like learn a lot about the different styles of cookie and like all of a sudden be like, oh, I really <laughs> like spicy cookies. Uh, but to me, treat and met market the cookie are on a collision course in the final. What is the 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 other cookies? Hello, Robin. The, Bells? Yeah, but yes, I'm telling you, there's some cookies in these streets. Sometimes I also can't have the met market cookie, so it's a little complicated. <laughs> <laughs> they must make a nut free version of it, right? They do not. Wow, that's kind of wild, actually. Maybe we should petition them. We haven't successfully done any of these things we've, you know, set out to do online. But does does whoever I'm runs? Fine. I don't care. I'm fine. Does whoever you're runs saying the market, cookie is that good? I just told you that it's it's if it's not one, it's one A. Wow. Okay. And I really love treat cookies, so that tells you how strongly I feel about the cookie. Yeah. But let's not do the search before the search. We'll start that next week. Actually, yeah, no, I guess we will. Uh, but for now, let's talk a little bit about basketball because last week was the return of Damian Lillard to Portland. Did you catch any of this game? Yeah, I, ca- I didn't see the end, but I saw most of the middle of the game. It went The night went, I think, about as well for the Blazers as it possibly could have gone. Uh, there was no negativity whatsoever after Damian Lillard's trade request last summer and you know a little bit of ugliness back and forth between him and the front office about how that finally went down uh, because of his desire to go to Miami. But, you know, 
ended up very happy about it, getting traded to a championship contender in Milwaukee, uh, despite the turmoil that the Bucks are currently in with Doc Rivers taking over as head coach midseason. Uh, Dame spoke for over 20 minutes, I think, pregame and, you know, handled everything beautifully. Uh, repeatedly said that he was not going to cry and then said after the game he did not cry, although onlookers generally believed that he was wiping away tears. <laughs> Crygate. He a, hashtag Crygate. He, he spoke an, for 20 minutes. No, to no, media, not. <laughs> oh, I, thought he, I was like, he did a fucking monologue to the he fans. He didn't sue Bird this. Oh, my God. I was going to say he's like Bill Simmons doing Castaway solo on the rewatchables. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't. He didn't get on the microphone at all during the game. Okay. But uh, there was over a minute long ovation when he was announced with the Bucks starters. I was kind of surprised they didn't announce him last. Although I guess that allowed them to like keep going and stop the, the ovation at some point. Uh, we had the two different tribute videos. One focusing on his on-court plays after the first timeout, during the first timeout. And then one about his community work. It's haunted during dealership. The second... No, no, no. Okay. Uh, I don't think that specifically came up. I someone pointed out, I I forget who mentioned this. Might have been might have been uh, Ben Golliver that like they they did a Sorry, Toyo- ad read. Toyota dealership. They ad, did an ad read for Damian Lillard Toyota at one point during the game. I don't know if there's still like just a straight up Blazers sponsor or what the story is, but he's still inextricably tied to the Portland community. Uh, and then you know they played the game and Dave wasn't bad, but. Uh, did not take over down the stretch. And it was like a playoff atmosphere in there. Fans were totally into it. Uh, it was it was really awesome. We're standing throughout the last couple of minutes. And Anthony Simons, Dame's kind of protege, like the anointed successor who has worked with his personal trainer, Phil Buckner, uh, comes through and delivers the game-winning shot in the late stages. It was a terrific night all around and probably the closest we're going to get to that playoff atmosphere in Portland for a while here. Oh, and also Scoo was 15 points in the first half. He's he's playing much better recently. He's had several of his better games of the season in the last week here. So encouraging developments for the Blazers. Perhaps he will be good just in time for the Seattle to get a team back. All right, let's get into the Mariners who have made another trade. I thought I thought we were going to do this uh, emergency pod style. I'm ready to talk about the storm. I don't want to talk about the Mariners. Somebody made moves this week. I mean, the fact that it's a day later, it's no longer that emergency body to me. But if you want to talk about the storm, we can talk about the storm. I have actual questions about okay. the storm. Actually, I have actual question about the storm. <laughs> uh, had they maybe could, could, can we walk through the transactions first? Sure. So last Thursday on the opening day of free agency, a couple of days after we recorded, they signed Skylar Diggins-Smith. Uh Six-time All-Star, I believe. Uh, old WNBA first team. Her most recent season in 2022 with the Phoenix Mercury did not play at all last season after giving birth. And also it was a uh, an acrimonious split from the Mercury. Uh, she said on Twitter that they wouldn't even allow her to use the practice facility last year to work out uh, while she was on maternity leave. But uh, clearly so the can top... You, what, can you explain to me why that was such an acrimonious split with the Mercury? She clashed with their head coach, Vanessa Nygaard, had some comments about that on Twitter earlier today uh, about how their relationship kind of started off on the wrong foot. Uh, Notably, so Nygaard, at one point when Diana Taurasi was not selected to the All-Star game in 2022, uh, 
Nygaard said that, you know, something along the lines of basically it's not a real all-star game if Diana Taurasi isn't there sticking up for her player. And Skylar quote tweeted this with a clown emoji because she was in the all-star game. Okay, fair enough. So that was that's like the most public example of it. But uh I and then, you know, I don't I don't know exactly where things stood as of last year, but you know clearly she was excommunicated. They didn't even treat her or acknowledge her as part of the team throughout last season when she was on maternity leave. So it Yikes. was it was like no no question that she was going to leave this uh this off season, but you know, plenty of interested parties given Scalver Diggins Smith's uh track record and the storm beat them out for, you know, to kind of continue the legacy of point guard play that Sue Bird uh established here in Seattle. Yeah, so how how good is Skylar Diggins Smith right now, uh, assuming that she's coming back near the same level that she was a year prior? Yeah, I mean she was the best point guard in the league, uh, in Phoenix, and you know she her her move from Dallas to Phoenix was like kind of the first of this generation of WNBA super teams. She was it also did... fired by the Mercury, right? Vanessa Nygaard. Yeah, she was fired midway through last season. <laughs> uh it it didn't have the kind of immediate results that everyone was expecting because in, in 2020, Brittany Griner was away from the team at the end of the season. That was obviously the weird wobble season. Next year, kind of up and down regular season, but the the sky the the Mercury beat the Storm without Brianna Stewart in overtime in the playoffs in the last game they played in Everett, and then knocked off Las Vegas in the semifinals and went to the finals, faced Chicago, ended up losing there in the finals. That was kind of the high point. Then obviously 2022, uh, new coach in, in Nygaard and Brittany Griner was wrongfully detained at that point in Russia. So, you know, Phoenix didn't have the full team. Uh, they made the playoffs, but just kind of snuck in and Jacob Smith was away from the team already by the playoffs that year. So she only played in the postseason twice with Phoenix out of her out of the four years she was under contract there okay okay so skylar Digg diggins smith is signed what next for the storm so so one of the big things we should walk back to last week i think we talked about or, or did we, i don't, I don't talked about any of this i don't remember what the timing was but so they they traded yeah no i guess this was not on the podcast they traded kia nurse and the number four pick in this year's draft to los angeles for the Sparks 2026 first round pick. And the reason this was important, you know, this is something I had kind of had seen as I was doing the WNBA mock off season was going to be necessary is both to create max cap room, uh, cap space for two max offers. And then number two, the other, the WNBA has a limit on the number of guaranteed contracts you can have. And they couldn't have offered two guaranteed contracts because Kia nurse had one. So that, that's what that move accomplished. I obviously had a pretty considerable uh, expense in terms of the, the lottery pick that uh, was going to be their highest since 2018. I think one of the things that's happened, Phoenix subsequently traded the number three pick in this year's draft uh, to Chicago uh, Tuesday as part of a deal for Kalia Copper. And it's become clear that the GMs definitely don't seem to expect all of this year's top prospects to come out. Paige Beckers in particular seems very likely to return to UConn because she's only had she hasn't had a real NCAA tournament run yet. 
uh, her first year was in the bubble. Her second year, she was coming back from a knee injury, then missed all of last season with an ACL tear. Uh, so she seems very likely to go back. We'll see with Caitlin Clark and Cameron Brink, who are you know the other two top prospects this year, but then also with Angel Reese sliding during draft boards. No longer did it seem like the fourth pick was actually all that valuable to have. I mean, still a good pick to have, but no longer as valuable as it as it seemed a few weeks ago at the lottery. So this is feeling like a one or two player draft now. Quite possibly. Okay. So what about the pick that the Storm traded for, the 2026 pick? Yeah, and that's why this isn't just them giving up the pick to get off that salary, which would have been too much to pay, I, I think, even with the the potential of free agency. But now they get an unprotected pick from the Sparks. We're clearly rebuilding. Uh, they've ended up, uh, they made another trade involving former Storm point guard Jordan Canada, who went to Atlanta. They have three of the top eight picks this year. They're the front runners to get the number one, to have the worst record uh, combined over two years going into next year's lottery. So they're hoping, I think, to, to add Page Packers. Packers. Yeah, yeah. Their hope they have this year's number two <laughs> pick is they draft Brink this year. Beckers next year, and those are kind of the the foundation. But they're taking a pretty huge risk because that 2025 season is when they're going to owe the Storm the unprotected first round pick. After that, so there is an outside chance if that you know they're coming off of presumably a losing one of the worst records in the league next year, they could be back in the lottery again in 26 with a good chance to pick number one then. And I mean, how many picks are there in the first round? Right, there aren't that many picks. Well, so. It really, at lowest, they're probably dropping down four or five picks. Right. And obviously, there's the time value of trading a 2024 pick for a 2026 one. But I thought it was a really creative way to do this trade by the two sides. And, you know, it's it's got a lot of upside for the Storm. It's plausible they could trade away the number four pick and get a higher pick in addition to creating the cap space that then allowed them to make that second max offer, which they go out and and on Monday... Uh, you know, I heard some rumblings that Neko Gumake was interested in coming to Seattle to pl- if Skylar Diggins Smith came here. She had announced that she was going to leave LA. Uh, she cut it down last Thursday to three finalists: the Storm, the New York Liberty, and Chicago. Now, the the concerning thing from the Storm standpoint is she spent all last week in New York. They had the release of a a documentary that the the WNBA Players Association put together. She was at the Brooklyn Nets game with members of the Liberty. They were clearly recruiting her hard, but they didn't have the same kind of role to offer that Seattle did. And uh, Sunday night, Storm social media starts tweeting about the tea, and it uh-huh. seemed like a pretty good indication that uh, Neka was coming to Seattle. And so Monday afternoon, she announced it, uh, joined her sister, Shanae, on the jump to uh, talk about the decision to come to Seattle. And this is a former MVP who's still playing at a really high level, was all WNBA second team last year. So now you give, add in Joel Lloyd. The Storm have three players who were all WNBA in their most recent season. And really? It's really good. Yeah. All WNBA, oh, how many teams there? Two. Two teams. So, so top 10 players, players who are top 10 players in the league. Yeah. Wow. I mean, when I look at New York, the idea that Neka Gwilmake would sign there just doesn't really make any sense to me. It felt like they had, it was New York who had sort of chemistry issues last year, right? Yep. And adding another player at that level was not going to fix those issues. And I think everybody involved was kind of aware that, I think Neka Gwilmake read the situation very right, that 
go somewhere where there's a clear role for you and a competitor to a team like this rather than putting yourself in the middle of the drama. Yeah, I mean, look, they would have figured it out. Brianna Stewart could have played small forward. I don't think she necessarily would have come off the bench there, but like they have five established starters. It would have been a pretty dramatic change for them one way or another. So I I thought Seattle made a lot of sense all along, and uh, Neko Gumake agreed. And now you've got, so the three of them, plus Ezi Megbagor coming off an all-star season uh, at age, I believe, 23. And, you know, the the biggest question is going to be who starts, I think, alongside them. Jordan Horston, last year's first-round pick, is who they surely want to have step into that starting role. She can be the the top perimeter defender personal there got to improve the 24 percent three-point shooting from last year i think most of the time you're gonna have sammy whitcomb finishing games in that small forward spot for the playmaking and shooting that she provides but that's a pretty strong top six you got mercedes wrestle as part of a, a rotation in the front court with ezzy you can play both power forward and center depending on who she's partnered with uh dulce fink Mengiato after her rookie season also in the mix there and then a really important player for the Storm is going to be Jade Melbourne, who uh, was the youngest player in the league last year, presumably steps into the backup point guard. This it's pronounced Melbourne. I, I tried to drop the R there. I don't know if it, it worked <laughs> successfully. You don't want to overpronounce it. Is she Australian? She is Australian, yes. That's, that's so weird. <laughs> it sounds like a TV character. It no, like, 100% like, sounds like, like a TV if character. If you're from Seattle. I think I've Jake made this joke. York. <laughs> I'm joking. Jade Melbourne. Paul Hollywood. That's incredible. It's such a good name. Jade Melbourne. So she's currently in national team camp with Ezzy and Sammy right now. And? And? What, I don't know what, what that question was. Future Storm legend. Former and future Storm legend. Oh, Lauren, Lauren Jackson. Jackson. Is she on the team? She is, yeah. It's time, Storm. It is time. There's a rule. There are a lot of Aussies on this team. We've got Jade Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> You're under. That's it. So, Melbourne. We think I can't is, pronounce that. Get out this of here. is an interesting wrinkle to the NECA signing. She took, like, according to Richard Cohen of HerHoopStats.com, very slightly less than the maximum salary. And what that means is the Storm can fill out their roster with two players making the veteran minimum instead of needing to go with someone on the lower rookie minimum. So Laura Jackson could be one of those two. Wow. Players. Veteran minimum, huh? Hmm. <laughs> That's a pretty tempting offer. <laughs> Lauren is still not coming back. Uh, okay, so so after adding, you have adding a point guard, adding a power forward to a team that already had some talent, uh, but just just needed a extra high end talent, right? That's what the yeah, storm I mean, needed. Look, we we know what this looks like, like exclusive. You know where the people do the Photoshop, and it's the player previously playing for that team in the jersey. You're, you're saying this is they they've just control C, control V, Subert. Brianna Stewart I mean, on this roster again. Obviously, Skylar Diggins-Smith and Neko Gunke are not the same players. And but like, is Skylar Diggins-Smith maybe better than where Sue was at this point? Yeah. So, you're saying they might be better than Sue Bird and Brianna I mean, Neko Gunke is not as good. Much love to her as Brianna Stewart is at this point. There's a reason that Stewie won MVP last season, her first year in New York. And, of course, the other thing is that version of the storm did lose to Las Vegas, who is 
even stronger with Alicia Clark and, and presumably they're going to have Candace Parker back, although she hasn't uh, officially made a decision on this season yet. And you've got New York is this other really powerful team. I mean, I think it's going to be fascinating to see what happens with that next tier. Connecticut is the team people always forget about in these conversations, but they've got their whole core back. Uh, they resigned Brianna Jones and Duana Bonner after Bonner considered coming to the storm as well. And, uh, you know, you've got Dallas and Atlanta are two young teams on the rise that, that finished fourth and fifth last season. And then I mentioned Phoenix. They added Kalia Copper. They they signed Natasha Cloud and and added Rebecca Allen in a sign and trade. They're going for it right now. Minnesota quietly had a very nice offseason. There's a lot of teams that are in the mix. I I think you must have named every team in the WNBA. That's seven. There's a handful of teams that are not competing right now, like L.A. and Chicago are clearly playing for lottery positioning. We'll see what happens with Washington and LA and Deladon, but they don't look nearly as competitive this season. But I would say if I'm penciling things out right now today, I have Seattle in fourth behind Las Vegas, New York, and Connecticut. Okay. But even, let's say that Brianna Stewart resigns with the Storm, right? Sue Bird retires, Brianna Stewart resigns. Uh, maybe they pick up point guard from... The college on the eastern half of the state. Uh, even still, they're probably about the, the only difference is that you take away one of the competitors in New York. They're exactly. weaker. Yeah. But like, all things considered, this team doesn't look that different than that. Uh, save for having a super team and just adding talent and adding talent and adding talent, which may happen after this. There's a reality that Vegas and New York are kind of tapped out, right? The Storms still have the possibility to bring in extra players this season or in 2025 yeah. and, and and beyond this season and beyond. And so one thing NECA signed a one year contract. The thing that's notably happening in the WNBA next year is expansion in 2025 to the Bay Area where NECA played at Stanford. I would not necessarily count on her being in the Storm uniform for a long time, but it probably depends on how this year goes as well. Of course. The other, but the, I think the, the ability to sign these two players. She's also sort of, thirty-three. Like, what what is the yeah. what is the aging curve of WNBA players? Like it, Skylar Diggins Smith, Neka Gulmake are both thirty-three years old. Yep, it's are probably they, not as severe as in the NBA, but yeah, obviously they're on the downside of their careers. When how how they could probably play till thirty-eight or so, something like that. I mean, super. Played into her for you. You're advocating for them to sign Lauren Jackson. I, I don't know if you're aware of this. She said her for it. Yeah, but I'm I'm not saying Lauren at Jackson a high level. Be, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, you're you're committing. Uh, Dick and Smith did sign a two year deal, but both of them are are still within the window of their primes, though. Just maybe on on the latter half of their prime. It's in there at the point where look, it's plausible that you could have a pretty significant year to year decline, but I don't know that it's likely that you would expect that. But the, the I think the important thing here is from the Storm's standpoint, this is the other element of give you trading away the fourth pick, is that like they've they've shown that they can go out and compete for the very best free agents on the market. These are the two best players that change teams, you know, in free agency by my projections. The new practice facility is a huge part of that. Climate Pledge Arena is a huge part of it. The history of the Storm franchise Absolutely. is a yeah. huge part of that. And it is kind of funny, like, we're in this free agency era of the WNBA now. The Storm hadn't really signed any notable free agents 
since this new CBA started in 2020. Like they added Tina Charles mid-season, but that was a little bit different. And for years, like they had been the destination. Players didn't usually change teams until the tail end of their career. But when they did, Cheryl Swoops, Yolanda Griffith, Tina Thompson, Katie Smith, all of these legendary players had, had not necessarily finished their careers because several of them played elsewhere, but come to Seattle, uh, you know, for the chance to to play alongside Lauren Jackson and Sue Bird and because of the franchise, the fan base and and all of those elements. And it's nice to sort of see a proof of concept that's that still is a viable path for the storm. But I actually think it's it's even more exciting because this isn't Brianna Stewart and Sue Bird are here players that they drafted, right? This is to play with Jewel Lloyd, obviously, who's already on the roster, but like these are players that are replacing those legendary players. Yeah. This is a, a full reset of the organization. And from where we talked about at the end of the draft lottery, right? We talked about basically the pick that they got in the lottery. They got the worst pick in the lottery, which made sense. They, it looked like the outlook long-term, like they are probably going to get in the playoffs the next year after missing this year. Things were looking pretty bleak for the Storm a year ago. And if it wasn't, not even a year ago, two months ago, and if it wasn't for their ability to go out into free agency and sign both of these players, then the, it would, the situation would still be pretty bleak, especially when you talk about who's out there, who's likely going to come out in the draft. They probably wouldn't have ended up with a top-tier player, right? So They would have, to, you know, probably next year will be closer to like a drop-off after if it's, you know, assuming Brink comes out and next year it's Beckers is the only player from this group. There'd be a bigger drop-off. There's other players, Rory Harmon, who's who's out with an injury right now. But yeah, it, like in that's the, short the thing term, is, though, what's the thing? In the WNBA, because it's so much smaller and star talent is so much more concentrated, like that's why I love getting this number one, this unprotected pick from LA because there's an outside chance it could be the number one pick. Yes. And like that small chance is actually, to me, in some ways more valuable than having the sure thing of the fourth pick in this year. Oh, yeah. Well, like as far as I can tell from the WNBA, Almost every year, there's at least one franchise-changing type player. But you kind of have to have number one or number two. Right. And number four is fine, but it's not quite the same as in the NBA, where basically every pick in the top five is, there's a chance of that player being a superstar player, right? Yeah, I think that's fair. So, and, and like players are coming out as much more proven commodities than they are in the NBA. So it's kind of like, you either have the pick and you draft the player, or you don't. Uh, so I, I think this is huge. I mean, who knows long-term, but at this point, you don't think about long-term. You just go try to win now because that's what the storm have been successful at. And that's why they were able to make these free agent signings. Right. And the thing is Vegas and New York are not going to be like this forever. They're, they're not going to have these teams, these rosters. Eventually that'll have to change. I don't know what the salary cap looks like, but as the league grows, like uh, those rosters are going to change. Players are going to age, et cetera. So I think you just have to focus on being as good as possible in the moment. And they've done that for these last two decades. And also, it, I think credit is due to the consistency of the storm, the fan base of the storm, the arena, the practice facility, everything about it. This is a, a good place to go play basketball in the WNBA right now. The other thing I'd say about Vegas and New York is they're forcing the rest of the league to up their games to compete with them in free agency. 
And the storm, obviously, the practice facility was long underway by the time, you know, these super teams formed. But that's we're seeing the tangible effects of the practice facility right now. And it's like if you're, the fast food wars. And if you're one of these teams that doesn't have a dedicated practice facility, you you better start working on those plans because otherwise you're going to be left behind. I mean, this is the other thing about kind of the consolidation that I mentioned in my story on ESPN.com uh, of last year's all WNBA teams. I believe it's seven of 10 play for the Storm, Liberty, or Aces. If you go back to 2022, it's eight of 10, assuming Candace Parker resigns at the Aces. And one of the other nine, the one of the other two players is Sylvia Fowles, who retired after last season. There's only one player who made the all WNBA team in 2022 who doesn't play for the Aces, the Liberty, or the Storm. Okay. Well, the WNBA is kind of like a haves and haves nots league, although you said it went seven deep. So I guess it's good to be one of those teams right now. Yeah, I mean, look, you you are sacrificing some depth. That's kind of the natural trade-off when you're spending that much money on the top players. And that's that's part of why New York and Vegas were able to do what they, they, they've done is because players have taken discounts. And we can talk about the reasons why that is happening. And uh, the league's uh, not thorough investigation of the uh, allegations of circum salary cap circumvention against the Aces last year. That's not happening in the Storm's case. They had, uh, you know, NECA took a slight discount, but basically they're maxing both of these players and, and Jewelloids on the super max. So they're really relying right. on that young talent to step up into key roles. And they have the draft pick in two years. Yep. Exciting times for the Storm. And, con and control their own draft pick in the next two years. That's one of the differences, like you were so unhappy with me trading a first round pick for Courtney Vanderslut. That's how they got away with it from it by trading this year's pick. No, I, I think that makes total sense. I, I, it's the, it's the thing that I would do when I'm playing like 2k or whatever, trade your draft pick. If you don't need that draft pick this year, if it's not that important, keep trading it for future draft picks. Eventually one of those is going to hit. Dallas hasn't exactly done that, but the, the wings are like sort of a strategy like this in the WNBA. And it is about to pay off big time because they have swap rights with Chicago next year. And Chicago looks like they're probably going to be the second worst team in the league. Yeah. If the Storm don't need that player this year, or they didn't feel like, I mean, they had to clear out the, they didn't make the trade to be able to make the signings anyway. But if they didn't need whoever was going to be the fourth pick in the draft, obviously it'd be helpful to have that player or whatever. But like, they, they could have drafted Nazi and stash them, you're saying? Uh, potentially, there's another 19-year-old Australian. I I don't know off the top of my head how to pronounce her name, but uh... Melbourne. <laughs> that that would have been the play if they stuck stuck it with that pick, in Sydney my opinion. Opera House. <laughs> well, it's going to be another exciting season with the storm. So it's, I'm looking I, forward to it. You said it's going to be another exciting. Last year was not an exciting season. I, yes, it's we're back to an exciting season with the storm. 2022 was great fun, and and it's a little bit more fun, right? There's new blood in Seattle, which there hasn't been in a long time. Yeah. So the, it was so consistent, and obviously, like Sue Bird was great. We loved watching Sue Bird, but like having brand new players play here, Skylar Diggins Smith, is it. I think there's so much renewed energy around the storm right now. Yeah. 100%. And it's, we are we are in the transact era of and, the WNBA. And give them credit. We see a lot of like women's professional sports teams fuck up things like this. The Storm were like 
on it with jerseys for Diggins Smith and Agumike available as soon as they signed. What teams have fucked that up though? Well, a lot of teams have that they don't have it. All right, good, good on the storm. Yeah, they got their act together. Well, a team that it remains to be seen whether they have the act together. Their act together is the Seattle Mariners, who made another trade last week, sending relief pitcher Prelander Baroa, AAA outfielder Zach Deloach, and the number sixty nine pick in the two thousand twenty four draft to the Chicago White Sox for reliever Gregory Santos. After Cubs of Coffee in 2021 and 2022 with the Giants, Santos was dealt to Chicago last winter for a non-prospect and delivered a terrific season rated as worth 1.3 war. Only now departed Justin Topa had more among Mariners relievers. Uh, Santos struck out better than a batter per inning and had a 2.65 FIP. Uh, notably, he did serve an 80-game suspension in 2021 after he tested positive for the banned anabolic steroid Stenozolol. Whom amongst us hasn't taken that, though? Whom indeed. So this is an interesting move because the Mariners don't usually like to invest a lot in relievers. Like, usually they're trying to generate relievers, but they clearly had a need for a leverage reliever after trading Topa as part of the return for Jorge Polanco. And Santos, I think one of the things that was attractive about him is that they have him under team control for a long period of time with a little over one year of of service time that's sweet sweet team control uh there, there was a video that, that service time Mar- mariners developmental or whatever tweeted about like an international player signing and he was like crying while signing and i was like all the mariners are thinking about <laughs> is that sweet sweet service time <laughs> so much team control when you sign. yeah the mariners wept over how excited <laughs> they were over that service time to manipulate. And then and if he shows any signs of promise, they will sign him to a 15-year contract. Well, you saw the Bobby Wood Jr. contract, right? Oh, I actually, here's the thing. It's funny because I actually think this is a great thing for almost all parties involved, the long-term contracts. Yeah. Because it, it does, it takes away the risk from the player, right? Primarily. Uh, of injury, anything like that. Bobby Witt, Julio, set for life. But the other thing is, if things go well for those players, like Julio will be a Mariner forever. And it's kind of cool to be able to cheer for somebody where it's like, like Juan Soto, if the Nats had signed a deal, like I, maybe they would have dealt him anyway, but like Probably not. the it, impending free agency is what made them deal Juan Soto so early. So like by signing that deal as a fan, it I guess, but it doesn't even really affect the flexibility. Like Julio's making his money now. The issue is the arbitration years in baseball, you know, like that, that's the overriding issue. But ultimately it's great to know if you're a Royals fan, that Bobby Witt's going to be there forever. Although the downside is now they're using it to get public money for their stadium. <laughs> so there's always a catch. In oh, look, the, the public there. money for their stadium is they're going to ask for it either way, whether Bobby Witt's there or not. It's not like they're going to be like, well, we would pay for it ourselves. Who among us hasn't asked for public money for our stadium? Anything else to say on on Santos? I mean, he seems awesome. I don't know. I people a... are Mariners fans are very hyped about this. I feel like I'm relatively down in comparison on this particular transaction. You're going to tell me that Gregory Santos doesn't seem awesome, though. And he's a little like he came kind of out of nowhere. Like I went and looked up the guy that they traded him for to the, the Giants got in return for him last year. He is an unsigned free agent. 
I I get that, but like a just awesome flame throwing reliever. You're like, and look, the Mariners have been very good at picking relievers. So maybe it's, you know, they're willing to invest so much here because they think they can turn him into, you know, an extreme, even more valuable reliever than he has been, which was already really valuable. And then they can trade him to maximize profits. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, so it was the, basically the, the piece that they traded here was that 69th pick in the draft, right? I mean, Baroa is... I think I think I saw he was the fifteenth ranked prospect. So for a reliever to be that high is in the in the organization. Yeah, not not in all of baseball, obviously. And then Deloach's triple A stats were actually pretty good, although maybe everyone's triple A stats are, are pretty good. Rich Amel, I'll sure were. Sam Hagerty's were terrific last season. <laughs> hey, how dare you? <laughs> uh I, it's actually a little bit of a win now move. And it's, a, it's a very much win now move, yeah. What we've been asking, we can't be mad at the Mariners for not making win now moves, and then when they make win now moves, also be mad at them, if that makes sense. I mean, I'm not so, mad at them. I'm just not like as hyped as everybody else. I'm like, okay. As, as a player, if Gregory Santos is even close to as good as he was with the White Sox, we will be hyped. And he'll be closing games for the Mariners. We will be so excited when he's coming. I think that is game. plausible. Yeah. So, Unless they think he's more valuable not closing games. Or whatever. But like he'll be pitching in high leverage situations. Yeah. So it'll be fun watching him. He'll be part of Los Bomberos. I have no idea the 69th draft pick, what the chances are of that player make, reaching the majors. I would have to guess that they are extraordinarily low, though. So it's it's kind of like to, yeah, I mean, draft picks get... don't get traded enough in baseball to really have a good sense of what the value of a draft pick is. But you could probably pick almost any pick outside of the top 15, and that player's chances of ever making the majors are probably not that high. But if they so... do make it... Oh! <laughs> you're... Now we're talking. <laughs> this Valentine's gig, get the Seattle Mariners the thing that they love the most. <laughs> <laughs> Some of that sweet, sweet team control. But like someone please mock up a Mariners jersey <laughs> with team control on the back. <laughs> but every team likes team control. Uh, but some teams like it more than others. I don't <laughs> think the Yankees are like sitting around at night thinking, how can we get that team control? I I don't know. I think I think the Yankees care about team control also. I mean, Juan Soto, very little team control. Well, now he has a lot because he signed a multiple-year deal. I suppose when they acquired him, yes. Yeah. Uh, but but this one is, he's 23. You know what I mean? They didn't yeah. like trade prospects or draft picks for somebody who's 32 or whatever. It could be like, both a win-now move and a long-term move. Yeah, I think I think this is a good move. I actually, I actually think that the Mariners, we talked about this the entire time, and I will note, you could look, back of the tapes, even when I was upset. I was like, I still think the Mariners are going to do something. He's 24 for the record. I think you said 23. Oh, he's 23 last year. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think the Mariners have had all things considered, knowing the limitations around them. Look, if we're being honest, I told you this starting a long time ago. They weren't signing Shohei. The Mariners could have oh. showed up with exactly the same deal that the Dodgers had. And they still weren't signing Shohei. Many, so, many teams did, apparently. It's It was a fanciful thought 
that they would ever have a chance. Shohei was going to the Dodgers. So, barring that, maybe they should have tried more aggressively to trade for Juan Soto. I don't know. It would have been exciting. It would have taken actual resources to have traded for Juan Soto. And the thing is, the Mariners still have those resources. Jared Kelenic is not the kind of trade asset that people in Seattle probably thought that he was. Like, the well, trade assets... <laughs> I don't think I ever thought that Kelenic was that great of a trade asset, but like... During the live pod? Well, that, I mean, that moment, that was the greatest Kelenic moment of all time. The assets that the Mariners have are, I, excluding Julio, obviously, it is all of their pitchers, Right. They got off the expensive contract from Robbie Ray. They still have Logan Gilbert. They still have George Kirby. They still have Bryce Miller, right? Like, they still have all of those players in the system that if the moment comes, if they're 5, 10 games over 500 going into the deadline, and it's like, hey, we can do this, they can flip one of those players and actually go out and find hitting. So I think the Mariners have allowed themselves. I think there is a team that, from the start of the season, I'm not going to make the mistake of saying I see no holes. Do you think there's? I think they are actually pretty deep offensively. They're not. They're not amazing, but they're pretty deep offensively. This is a. This is a better group of hitters than they had a year ago. I I had two points. I didn't. I don't think I made on last week's pod. If I if I did, and you actually remember them, stop me. Uh, number one, I think that people always think about their team is like the main character and every other team is an NPC. But like the Mariners are the only team dealing with financial issues because of the the blow up of these uh, RSN deals. Like the Twins traded Jorge Polanco. Like I think they'll do pretty well long-term in that trade, but like they did that trade because they're massively cutting their payroll this off, in part because they're massively cutting their payroll this off season and, and beyond. And like they're spending 40 million less than they did last year. It's not like going to come in a few million less like the Mariners. So like they're not alone here. And then number two, if you are financially constrained as the Mariners are, this is one of the points that Michael Lewis makes in Moneyball. You got to choose which warts you're willing to live with. And last year, the Mariners wart probably was strikeouts. Gino Suarez, certainly Mike Ford, Teoscar Hernandez. That was the wart that those guys had that was part of the reason that they were on the Mariners. This year, the Mariners have decided that ward is unacceptable. This year, their ward is uh, durability. When you look at the guys that they've added, the Mitches, Polanco, like the common denominator here is uh, health injury risk. And if those guys mostly stay healthy, the Mariners are going to be pretty good. If they stay completely healthy, the Mariners are going to be really good. And if they have miss as much time as they did the last couple of years, then it could that depth could be tested. I mean, you you have to have a lot of players. I but also when you're talking about the Twins, that's a playoff team yeah. from last year, which was not as good as the Mariners, by the way. Yes, but you look. If the at Mariners the... had been in the AL Central. How differently would we talk about the Mariners than if they didn't happen to be in the same division last year as the Rangers and Astros? If you look at the wild cards, there's four teams. I, there might even be five teams in the East who could all make the playoffs. The East is going to be extraordinarily competitive. You kind of just have to hope that as a byproduct of playing each other a ton, somebody is going to fall behind there, which is almost certainly what's going to happen. And it's probably going to come down to 
are there going to be three teams in the AL East to make the playoffs, or are there going to be three teams in the AL West to make the playoffs? And the difference in that will probably be a handful of games. Could Gregory Santos be the difference of those games? I still, I think there's a chance that making a move like this at the major league level, whereas Prelander Baroa or the 69th pick, we're not going to be that player. So these are the types of moves that you have to make. Also the flexibility though, because if it is like we're, we're within striking distance and there's a player out there who warrants an Emerson Hancock trade, the Mariners can go make that trade. And not every team who's a contender can do that, especially having young and oh, team-controlled pitching. Like, there are not a lot of teams who have that, and the Mariners are one of the only teams in the league who have a glut of young and team-controlled pitching. It's hot, hot stuff. As so, long as those, those guys all stay healthy as well. Somebody's not going to stay healthy. But that, that's why there are a lot of them. And, and there's other players that, you know, we're not talking about Castillo in the same way because he's not in that same uh, group. But, like, between Hancock, Brian Wu, Bryce Miller, George Kirby, Logan Gilbert, that's a lot of pitchers. Yeah. So, I don't know. I am back well, to positive on the Mariners as we are, we are one week away. Yeah, pitchers and catchers reporting next week. It's, it's coming. Spring is coming. Didn't feel, I didn't necessarily feel like it this week, but. For for Valentine's Day, pitchers and catchers report, and the Mariners get what they love the most. What what gets them going? That sweet sweet team control. All right, well, let's get into the roundup. Starting with the Kraken, All Star Oliver Bjorkstrand played for Team McKinnon with Captain Nathan McKinnon in Saturday's NHL All Star Game at Toronto's Scotiabank Arena. Bjorkstrand was one of four players who weren't drafted and were randomly assigned to teams for the three on three competition. <laughs> didn't get drafted. Because they don't want to, they don't want to have a last pick, so they, they just like that the last is four. Even worse. Sorry, <laughs> I hockey. Know, it somehow, it somehow is. I would uh, much rather be the last pick than not drafted. He went undrafted. He's not even the Brock Purdy. He's the Thomas Rawls of of the NHL All Star Draft. He's the Jermaine Curse, sir. There we go. Uh, Bjorkstrand did score as Team McKinnon tied Team McDavid 3-3 in the semifinals before losing a shootout 2-0. Uh, Kraken, start the second half of their if, schedule. If it means anything, I've never once heard of Nathan McKinnon. You the probably Kraken. have. He played against <laughs> the Kraken in a number of playoff games last year. <laughs> Who won that Oilers-Vegas game? Oh, Vegas won it. Woo. Do you know about this at all? No. Edmonton was going for the to tie the longest win streak in NHL history. Oh, I did not realize that. No, and and they came up against the Golden Knights, who beat them at home. Wow. Yeah. Well, there you go. We have stats. Oh, this is the wrong season here. Stats for the first round series against Colorado. How many scores goals did <laughs> Nathan McKinnon score? He had three goals and four assists. In the seven game series. That's to to me the NPC thing about every other team <laughs> is the Kraken are playing a game and then there are people on the other team. It's like the hockey guys, like the children's hockey guys. That's that's who's Kraken the Kraken have players who I might have heard of and will remember, and they are playing against jerseys. 
when people talk about the laundry thing, like you're cheering for laundry, that's every other team in the NHL. I'm just like a, a person in that jersey skating around fast. Someday we'll do how many NHL players and other teams are, you know, including the Kraken for that matter, Ken Tristan name. <laughs> Nathan McKinnon. <laughs> I'm at one. The, can you name the player who was the Kraken's all-star who I just talked about? Uh, uh, Bjorkstrand. All over Bjorkstrand, yeah, we'll give, the, give you that one. Right, I could, definitely could not name a single Golden Knight, though. Uh, they've got Eichel, right? <laughs> I don't don't look to me for confirmation <laughs> of that. I don't know that I name know a lot of Golden Knights players, but I do do know, in fact, Jack Eichel. And I know that the Oilers have Connor McDavid. Uh, the Kraken start the second half of their schedule with their last East Coast road trip of the year, starting Saturday at Philadelphia, continuing with a back-to-back against the Devils and Islanders in the New York metro area Monday and Tuesday. I'm not seeing anybody named Eichel who played today. Uh, he's injured right now, it looks like. Okay. Last played J- January 11th, according to Hockey Reference. I also knew it was Mario Lemieux's uh, Penguins who had the longest win streak ever. Oh, I did not. Yeah. You show me the penguins in the 90s, I can easily identify uh, Mario Lemieux. Nor are you Italian? Have, have, we, have we confirmed that? I mean, or, Lemieux or is a very be... French name. <laughs> I know, but his name is Mario. It is true. We'll look, look that up while we talk about the Seattle Sounders, who started their preseason action last week in Marbella. Uh, they, they signed a player named Jade Marbella. On Wednesday, they opened with Serbian side FKTSC playing a pair of 60-minute scrimmages. They drew 1-1 in the first and 2-1 in the second. Few starters played in that one, just the Roldans, Josh Atencio and Joao Paulo. On Sunday, they beat Swedish club IFK Norchapin 3-0 in 135 minutes of action. Albert Rushnak and Leo Chu scored with the starters on the pitch, while Dale and Tevez scored after the teams rotated in their second units at 70 minutes. Sounders started last year's favorite attackers and midfielders with the presumed second unit backline of Javier Arriaga, Cody Baker, and newcomers John Bell and Nathan. Uh, new designated player Pedro de la Vega has not yet played. He's still coming off that injury in Argentine uh, youth camp. Sounders will face OB from Denmark on Friday before returning home, and home will now be Renton, Washington. Hello. Uh, Seattle Rain FC added a pair of Welsh players last week, looking to cash in on that uh, welcome to Wrexham hype, signing midfielder Haas James and left back Lily Woodham to join Welsh captain Jess Fishlock. Uh, James, who was with Tottenham, she's not the captain, but she was the MVP of the league. James, who was with Tottenham, previously played in the NWSL with the Courage in 2021 and the Pride in 2022. She appeared in all 22 WSL matches and started 17 last season, but had fallen out of the Hotspurs starting 11 in recent weeks, paving the way for her departure. Uh, Woodham, who was at Reading, is on the rise at age 23. She debuted in the WSL at age 18 and already has 47 starts to her credit in WSL, despite the club's demotion this season. Okay, I had some some update on Mario Lemieux. Okay. <laughs> the Wikipedia says Lemieux was born in Montreal, way down south in Montreal, to Piriet, a stay-at-home mom, and Jean-Guy Lemieux, obviously Italian. <laughs> <laughs> so not a lot of strong evidence there. So I mean, pretty strongly French-Canadian. I, there's one website called wetheitalians.com with the headline, The Greatest Italian Athletes from Pittsburgh. That's a sentence. <laughs> and, and lists... Uh, 
Stanley, two netminers of Italian descent were unsung heroes of the victory. Yes, Mario Lemieux, Yarmir Yager, and Paul Coffey were the leaders of that cup run. And I'm just like, oh, okay, so they're not claiming they were Italian. <laughs> yeah, I see. Adjacent I thought this was. I thought this was like grandma and grandpa level, just being like, <laughs> we are claiming anybody who did anything good. I mean, how I, many how many pages do they have devoted to Franco Harris on the great <laughs> Italian Pittsburgh yeah, athletes? We, we the Italians but without the goaltending of Tom Barrasso and the pinch hit appearance of backup Frank Pietrangelo, uh, Frank Pietrangelo. Okay, uh, the Penguins never win that Stanley Cup. So okay. Mario Lemieux, not Italian. Mario Lemieux, teammate to two Italians. And really, goaltending is what Italians do best, I think. It's the catcher of hockey. That checks out. That checks out. Shouts to and Mike Piazza. We play defense. Uh, oh, yeah, good point. That's what we do. Stop people from scoring. Yeah, we stop people from scoring. We don't throw stuff on the court when we lose. <laughs> Different wees. <laughs> a lot of ways. This is it's, it's Seattle. There, look, more Italians are coming later in this podcast. I'm aware. Are are you? <laughs> Wait. Coming. I don't know. Are we talking about the same Italians? I don't Italian. know. Uh UW Softball is back on the rundown. They open the weekend season this weekend with the Puerto Vallarta College Challenge. They'll face a pair of ranked opponents, number one, Oklahoma, of course, and number 17, Nebraska, future Big Ten rival. Huskies are ranked 10th in the preseason poll, third among Pac-12 teams after Stanford and UCLA. Uh, pitchers Lindsey Lopez and Ruby Malin were the two Huskies selected for the preseason All-Pac-12 team. So what what is the day that UW officially joins? Is it July 1st? Yes. That UW officially joins the Big Ten? It's, it's kind of strange because we are definitely on, like the minute the football season ended, it felt like it was like, it's Big Ten time. Right. And then this basketball season is going and it's like, once that finishes, but like there's certain seasons where it's like, we're just closing them out or whatever. And it's just like ending that era or whatever. So this being the final season of PAC 12 softball, very competitive. Pac-12 it'll, be, softball. it'll be the last time. I mean, the, the this move, like the big 10, we'll see how much it benefits them in football softball. This is a huge fucking move for the, didn't big we 10. look at it? And, Oh, you're saying the big 10 is going to, cause I think the big 10 had some pretty good softball teams also. Right? No. What was no. the sport that Big Ten was surprisingly good at? Maybe baseball. It might have been baseball that we looked at. Softball, they're not notable. Michigan beat UW at softball last year? Uh, that was two years ago. Okay. But yes. But notably, Michigan was like the Big Ten champion, did not have home field in the first round, They or, or maybe the second, uh, the semifinals. Uh, the super regionals, I guess is what yeah. they call them in softball. Do you want to hear this crazy thing that happened to UW bas- men's basketball? What's that? Won the Pac-12. <laughs> oh, no. Didn't even make the NCAA tournament. I uh, swear they. I swear to God it happened. It really did. Can you imagine that now? <laughs> yes, actually. If Arizona, I, can, I can imagine. They're above by the grace of Arizona. <laughs> but where we're going. <laughs> we won't need roads where we're going. <laughs> There also, there also might just be a two-conference tournament where we're going. Very plausible. We'll see what you that working know. committee ends up coming <laughs> up with. 
All right, UW women's basketball had a setback weekend as they were on the wrong end of a pair of lopsided losses at home to the ranked Mountain teams. They pulled within seven of number 20 Utah after three quarters on Friday night, but gave up 28 points in the final period. They were unable to stop Alyssa Peely, who scored 31 points on 12 of 16 shooting, with Jenna Johnson adding 19 on 9 of 11 as Utah shot 65% from the field. On Sunday, Huskies never really in the game against number six Colorado, shooting just 32% as Aaronette Vonley led the Buffs with 21 points on 10 of 13 shooting. So uh, Huskies struggling with size last weekend. Uh, this weekend, they host the various schools on Friday. It's number six Stanford, which dropped two spots after losing at Maples to USC with Juju Watkins scoring 51 points for the Trojans last Friday. She's a freshman, so uh, she's in the 2027 WNBA draft, and you may or, want to start trading for picks for that. I don't, I don't know if she's got the ability to declare in 2026. We'll have to investigate that. But if so, not a good idea by LA to trade, trade that pick. Uh, the Cardinal rallied to beat fellow top 10 team UCLA on Sunday, and Tara Vanderveer recently passed Mike Shevsky to become the all-time winningest coach in Division One history, men's or women's. Then Cal on Sunday, a crucial game for the Huskies to stay in the bubble conversation. They're currently the first four out on Bracketology. Uh, Huskies lost 70-57 at Cal in their Pac-12 opener. The Bears coming 3-8, and eight, a half game back of UW, and have lost four in a row entering this weekend. And now UW men's basketball. <laughs> <laughs> it was a heartbreaker at Heckhead Saturday, the last home game. Or was it? between UW and, well, and Washington State as Pac-12 rivals uh, in the Apple Cup series. Huskies led 82-81 with the ball, 12 seconds left. Moses Wood fouled, split two free throws, allowing Washington State to tie the game on an Isaac Jones dunk. The Huskies then scored just four points in overtime, were shut out after Miles Rice's three gave the Cougars a 90-87 lead that proved the final margin. Huskies dropped to 1-4 in, in Pac-12 games, decided by five points or fewer. Uh, Keon Brooks Jr., fabulous in defeat, scoring 35 points on 12 of 23 shooting. Wood had 5 of 6 from 3, but did not attempt and shot in OT when Brooks missed the potential tying 3 on the final possession. You have no reaction to this whatsoever. You're just ready to move on from this era of Husky basketball. I mean, I think a lot of people are ready to move on from this era of Husky basketball. It's over. And... It, it's it's almost frustrating that we have to live through this lame duck era. Do you think it's better or worse for Will Conroy? I don't know. I mean, the, the thing that's frustrating about this is the Huskies aren't a bad team. They're not like Gonzaga-level good in Ken Baum. They're not like an NCAA tournament team. But, you know, you change a couple of results in Pac-12 play, and they're 500 and have the more favorable—they're above 500 and have the— you know, if they go three and two in these close games, they're above 500, have the more favorable half of their schedule coming up. Like we're talking about them having a chance to make a run at the NCAA tournament. But now it's, you know, close to they got to they got to just about, you know, win out the rest of the way to have a chance. And as I've said, sometimes you have to win the games. You have said that. That, to me, is actually one of the most important pieces here. The process is great. Ken Palm's great. Being close is great. Sometimes, in my opinion, in a competitive sport where they keep score, is winning the games is important, and that's what UW men's basketball has not done good enough. I I agree, but like it would be different if it was like the last couple of seasons. It's just like this team not, is clearly not even good enough to be competitive. Like this team, is, there's a competitive I guess team. So. Isn't that worse though? 
that there's a competitive team in here and they still are losing. Like, the, well, also that Frank Kepnong still hasn't played. Like that minor knee injury where he could have gone back into the game. Uh, like, I mean, you can't blame. Like, there's a communication issue there, but there's nobody to blame for it, right? No, we would never blame Jabbar Muhammad for transferring to to <laughs> Oregon. But like, the it's yes, it's didn't the Fra Frank Kepnong come from Oregon? He he did, yes. <laughs> Um, it's basketball. Who even cares? I see them in the in the next four out, and I'm like, I saw Wazoo in the last four, and I'm like, hell yeah, let's go Wazoo! Oh, yeah, all for that. Let's go. <laughs> um, it's so funny how different it can be depending on the sport. I, it's I also do... depending on the week. I like 51 weeks a year. I I root for Washington State football. One week a year, their fans are super annoyed. <laughs> I I I actually have to let you on to something. They are walking the earth being that annoying all the rest oh, of the time. Not to me. <laughs> they're being that annoying now. I don't know. To they're not, State they're fans, not I guess. more annoying that week. They're the same level of annoying. You just don't mm, see it. They're more annoying. <laughs> they're more extra. It's it's like when you pick up the couch and see all the garbage under the couch. It's still there, whether <laughs> you put the couch down or not. It's not I, like the garbage disappears. I agree with this analogy. Because you don't have garbage on your couch. <laughs> don't talk to Katie. <laughs> <laughs> uh ben's the only good kook but i i just when when the team the promise that they had at the beginning of the season i understand the captain injury but like the your complaint about it is just that mike hopkins hasn't said hey this is a serious injury that'll keep him out a month two months like is that more helpful it's literally just a, a hope thing it's almost like like I guess it would be nice to know, but it doesn't change whether Front Kepnon's playing or not. And look, you don't don't know, you know, necessarily, but there's just not a lot of transparency. I'm sure he wants to be playing, and I'm sure Mike Hopkins wants him to be playing. It's not like Mike Hopkins is like, sit this one out, bud. Just I, rest I a little bit agree more. With that. So like I it sucks, but the, the reality is people get injured playing sports. I'm, that's not my complaint. Again, my complaint is like you never have any idea but they're not, they're whether not he's going to play. So you something. keep hoping that like, oh, this will be the game where he comes back and plays, and then it's always not that game. Well, somebody needs to is how do they is NBA better at this injury reports? Obviously, they're yeah. better, but like, are they NFL level good? At I mean, they're they're finding people for Joel Embiid not being on the injury report and then not playing. Okay. I mean, I agree with you. I don't know. It's probably going to change over time as people start gambling more on college sports. Yes. But not that many people are gambling on the Apple Cup series in basketball. <laughs> and whether Frank Kepnong is playing. But eventually that will probably change. Look, the, there's there's about to be an, an AFC and an NFC or whatever. And everything is going to change with college sports. Right now, it's kind of just annoying. But it doesn't change the fact that Frank Kepnong is injured. And is not playing, and the team didn't win. And they're not winning games. Maybe pre-injury, we felt like the team. Maybe the team would have been as good as we thought they were pre-injury. And it's just that Kepnong injury is such a huge deal, and Braxton Mia coming back post-injury just isn't as good. Like that's fine, but then overall the team just isn't that good because you need to have the depth to withstand one injury. And it's not even necessarily an injury from your best player. This is Keon Brooks being injured. No, so. I don't know. 
that's it. The team, like, it's it's over. The team just isn't good enough. And the reality is they're a very old team, and they're not building something right now. The other annoying thing about this, though, is, like, Mike Hopkins' contract is going to finally be in a position where the team can fight the the uh, school can fire him at a point where there's like no exciting coaching prospects on the West Coast. Like Mark Madsen looks like he's a legitimately outstanding coach. Like Cal has been awful for such a long period of time. Cal is ahead of UW in the Pac-12 standings this year. In Mark is Mark Madsen the coach season. of Cal? He is. It's his first season at Cal. Yeah. He's also going to a pretty good basketball conference too. So it's not like if you were at Oregon State or Wazoo, you'd be like, there's a chance. Is Kyle Smith? I I thought about it. I feel like I don't feel like there's any way the Board of Regents would do that to another to Washington State, especially at this moment in time. Like it's like <laughs> we've already done enough. <laughs> we can't take their coach too. But just like wait a year. I don't know. That's I mean, I agree that's the problem, but the there's there's always good coaches out there. Not no one exciting. Will Conroy is 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 the guy for me. Then it'll be Will Conroy. What is that a problem? Would you rather Will Conroy go somewhere else? No, I'd rather Will Conroy be assisting our guy who's at Florida now. Who? Uh the USF coach. Todd Golden. Oh, the San Francisco coach? Yeah. Did he get that Florida job the year that we wanted UW to hire him? Yeah. Do you think he would have taken the UW job over the Florida job? No. Okay. So what? then maybe when there's an exciting coach, UW is very low in the coaching carousel in basketball. This isn't poaching Jed Fish UW. This is like you got to take what you get UW. You need to find somebody who's going to build the program to that place. They need a Sark. They could have hired Eric Musselman the year that they hired Hopkins. He would have come here. Well, everybody involved in that decision is now gone. And it is true. I th- I think we have to have faith in Troy Dannon. And he- he's done so far. First off, we don't have to have faith in any. I think we can have faith in Troy Dannon. T- Troy Dannon. Based upon all available evidence from his very short tenure, as this is for you, parsing for you, as UW athletic director, seems to have made some of the best possible decisions given the situation that he was put in. All right. Let's not even bother previewing these games against the Ducks and the Beavers. The Huskies will play them this weekend. Who Thank cares? God. Let's talk there about UW football. Yes. Love it. Who cares? <laughs> because let me tell you, if you think about the NFL, coaching over the last 15 years there's like two diametrically opposed coaching philosophies which intersected in a super bowl that was canceled inexplicably with under a minute remaining the pete carroll let's have fun let's let our players express themselves and be who they are and then the bill belichick do your job philosophy and now for the first time ever those two philosophies back to back with the new england patriots are coming together a single team. There we go. And that team is the Washington Huskies. <laughs> we'll have Nate Carroll is their offensive coordinator. And Brennan, Stephen Brennan Carroll, not Nate. I'm sorry, Brennan Carroll is their <laughs> offensive coordinator. And Stephen Belichick is their defensive coordinator. I googled Steve Belichick, who apparently is Bill Belichick's dad. Yes. His, his and I was like, father. they're hiring a hundred-year-old? <laughs> he passed away. I thought Bill was old. Um... <laughs> 
Uh, that's funny that you consider them diametrically opposed. Like philosophy. You don't? I, I mean, they're kind of the same philosophy in a lot of ways. It's just like the the fun aspect, the philosophy as as far as how to treat players and a franchise are opposed. The philosophy on the field isn't all that different. And it is sure. pretty funny that one is an offensive coordinator and one is a defensive coordinator when it's like the, as he's the offensive line coach, offensive coordinator. Jed Fish is the offensive coordinator. It but is, it is it is, it is kind Fish's of funny that like they're all they're all on the same team here. Steve Belichick, Brendan Carroll, they're all Steven, on the same Steven team Belichick. here. I think he goes by Steve. I don't think so. I've, anyway, I've not seen that. I I freaking love this. I am hyped. You you can't tell me that this isn't exciting. Having a Carroll and a Belichick together, they account for seven Super Bowl wins. Is that right? Their I mean, parents, it's, it's, <laughs> the families. <laughs> yeah, the families. <laughs> the two, the two families coming together. Uh, two it's, of it's the Belichick number plus one. I mean, I don't. I, don't I know. know, but but the other thing is, there's a national championship in there as well. Correct. So. These are people who've won, their parents, who have won everywhere they've been at every level, been some of the best coaches in all of the NFL. And most notably, everybody knows they've been the best coaches in the NFL. These are not private names at all. And in college, this is the, the, the nepotism, I will say for what it's worth, the nepotism seems to have worked in the NFL in a lot of situations. I mean, nepotism isn't necessarily a problem because of the fact that it it leads to hiring bad coaches. It's more that, you know, who's not getting the opportunities here. It is kind of wild. It's almost like a pop star whose dad isn't J.J. Abrams. But, like, <laughs> <laughs> I can't can't think of one. But, like, or didn't star on a Disney TV show or in the movie Mean Girls. It's kind of wild how you could go through all of the young pop stars. And it's just, like, dad's J.J. Abrams, movie, TV show, TV show, Disney, it is bonkers. That's what being a coach is. Uh, if you're if you're born a player, you're either the child of a coach. Those are kind of your two avenues. I think that's kind of the incredible thing about the head coach at the University of Washington and Jed Fish. Kind of none of the above. Yeah. Right? Self-made man. He's got that he could prove. Below him, two coordinators who are the sons of some of the best coaches in the NFL for the last two decades. I mean, so Belichick's resume does stand on its own. You know, it's obviously difficult to parse out his role in the Patriots defense from Bill's role. But even though he was not the defensive coordinator, he was just outside linebacker coach. Like he's called plays for the last uh, four, five seasons here since Brian Flores' departure. And the Pats were in the top five in defensive DVOA three times in those five years. They were ninth this past season, number one overall in 2019, the last year they won the Super Bowl. Uh, and if you look at a specific position assignment outside linebacker, Matt Judon goes to New England, emerges as a premier edge rusher, making the Pro Bowl in 21 and 22, 32 sacks in 38 games there. Uh, did see a big drop off without him last season as their pass rush went from third in sack rate in 2022 to 28th last year. But still, again, still the ninth a top overall defense. Beat. Yeah, and that's with Christian Gonzalez getting injured, losing Matthew Judon. Like the the Patriots' defenses that I'm going to give the Belichick checks in general were leading, but that Stephen Belichick was calling plays for. These are not like overwhelming with talent defenses. I got to say, I didn't realize they were this good. 
DVOA wise, especially this Patriots, season. The team was so were bad. good at defense. I I thought the last few years they were not. I didn't realize they were this strong. The, uh, that, Bill Belichick kind of has the goods. <laughs> like, if we're being honest, Pete Carroll's defense is meh. Bill Belichick. He kind of can do it, you know. So. Stephen Belichick, not the only assistant coming to UW from New England. The Huskies well, also. I want to say on the nepotism piece, having those two coaches, because I think sure? the thing the thing that we've learned. Are you sure you don't want to wait on the nepotism piece because there's more coming? In the NFL, you're saying? Yes. No, this is at college. Okay. The nepotism is not as helpful in the NFL. At college, having those names, and I think the thing that we've learned through this process is. Head coaches matter a lot. Position coaches matter a ton to these yeah. recruits. And I think that's the thing that way back in the days of That's your, the person you're talking to every day. Exactly. We weren't seeing that in the same way, right? Like, Jed Fish matters. Kalen DeBoer matters. Individual position coaches, you know, Jamarcus Shepard, those people matter to the players and to recruits. And the most important thing that you can do at college, having a good scheme, having a good system, winning, all of those things are important. I like how you most... saying at college instead of in college. Whatever. In college, the most important thing you can do is go get good players. Because yeah. you can go into the portal, you can go recruit, and you can go get good players. It's a lot easier than it is in the NFL. And when you're going into the room and you have three Super Bowl rings, if you're Steven Belichick, that shit matters, being able to do that. Because there's other defensive coordinators. There's a coach at Oregon who's a defensive coach who has a national championship at Georgia, I believe. But, like, he doesn't have any Super Bowl rings. His dad isn't maybe on track to be the winningest coach in NFL history. Like, there, there is a pedigree that Steven Belichick is coming with that when he's going and talking to recruits, and also, do you know who else knows about his parents? The, recruits' parents. Yeah. That's who knows. Everybody knows the name Belichick. Anybody in football knows the name Belichick, and they know the name Carroll. And when you're coming there, the kind of weight that that's going to have is different than almost anybody else. So the this, this scheme matters. The winning matters, but beyond that, when you're going into the transfer portal, into recruits' homes, inviting them onto campus, that shit is a huge deal. And I, I liked the coordinators that UW had defensively last year. I thought they did a pretty good job given the talent. But like, if you were to ask me apples to apples, that exact same defense, Stephen Belichick is coaching it versus the coordinators from last year, I'd have to assume that Stephen Belichick is probably going to be running a better defense and the thing that we know about bill belichick and his defenses is that he is able to adjust to what teams want to do he's able to find the weakness of what you want to exploit and to exploit that shit so if that's what you dub we'll see with the level of talent that they have but if there is anybody that I would expect to be able to make the most with the talent that they have on the roster it is steven belichick i'm freaking hyped about this so William Inge, who was the co-defensive coordinator last year with Chuck Morrell, we did get the news that he will join Kalen DeBoer's staff. No word Alabama. on Chuck Morrell yet, right? No. Uh, so the other coach coming to the Huskies from New England uh, is Vinny Sinceri. There we go. 
who was announced as assistant coach without specifying his role. The expectation is he'll likely catch safeties. He was the running back coach in New England the last three seasons, but played safety during his three-year NFL career, including a practice squad stint with the Patriots. He started his coaching career as a grad assistant at his alma mater, Alabama, in Uh 2019, before joining the Patriots. And you'll never believe this. He coached with his dad, Sal, there. There we go. Sal coached briefly in the NFL in addition to a long college career. He's now at Colorado as defensive tackle coach under Deion Sanders. Sal, Sincerius? Yeah. That's kind of awesome. But you know what we love to see, those vowels at the end of a name, a Sal is your dad. We've got an Italian in the house, too. I mean, Vinny is plenty Italian in his own right. Oh, we love to see it. Hopefully Vinny's it's formerly sincere. Vincenzo. <laughs> Yes, it's not. not. Uh, This, I mean, just kind of awesome. Like Vinny Sinceri is overqualified for this job. Oh, do you know what his middle name is, though? Uh, I actually looked this up yesterday. What is it? Salvatore? Oh, yeah, yeah. Presumably is his dad's name, yes. That makes sense now that I think about it. I mean, when I saw Vinny, Vinny Sanceri was coming here, went and looked at his history. He's 30 years old, coming to UW. He's already been with the Patriots. He's already been in Alabama. 32 years old. All ages on this podcast in approximate. Why did I think? Oh, the little thing on the sidebar on Google has it wrong. It says born 1993, age 30. How strange. Uh, but just considering how young he is and where he's been already, like to me, I, I am, I don't know if he'll be here long and that's fine. Like this is somebody who to me is on a real fast track as far as coaching. He's probably going to be a full coordinator somewhere. Look, maybe it'll be here if Steven Belichick moves on, but like this, this is going to be a hot coach after this. So him coaching in Seattle position coach wise, losing Ryan Grubb, who we'll see. That sucks. Jed Fish is the new offensive coordinator. But like, when Vinny Sinceri is talking about Alabama, he's like, your fucking guy now was in South Dakota when I was at Alabama winning national championships. You know what I mean? Like, I don't believe that timeline works out, but... He was in the Corn Palace. Is that what they call it? Corn Palace is in South Dakota, yes. With Mike Miller. (laughs) When I was at Alabama winning national championships, there is a difference. It's nice that you had one good year, but to me, defensive coordinator-wise, with the transition of coaches, I think UW is upgraded. We'll see about Jed Fish. We don't know. Offense coordinator-wise, having Vinny Sinceri in the program is when you're going and talking to, again, in the transfer portal, two recruits is going to make a difference. Like, I I think this UW team is set up. Again, all things considered, the doom. Do you remember when we had that podcast where I was like, I am straight not having fun? Well, guess what, motherfuckers? We're having fun again on Montlake. We've got Italians in the house. We've got Belichicks. We've got Carols. We've got everything. There are players coming in the portal. I I as far as I can tell, they're going to field a roster next year. There are players coming back to Seattle. They went into the portal and they're coming back, baby. This is, it, all things considered, has been such an exceptional transition. Yeah. I, 
I think the other thing here is like <laughs> you talked about the the name value. The other element is just the NFL pedigree. And like they've made it, the Huskies have made it abundantly clear. Jed Fish has made it abundantly clear. What they are selling recruits is we have NFL experience. We have NFL style systems. We are going to put you in the NFL. And it helps that UW is about to have a shit ton of players drafted. Granted that they had nothing to do with the coaches who are currently. Doesn't matter. Look, the previous coaches had nothing to do with recruiting most of those players. So, uh, also, Kalen DeBoer was already at Southern, Southern Illinois by the time that. Uh, oh, oh, sorry. He was at Southern Illinois. He was in the big city. Wait, can I come up with where Southern Illinois is? This is the Salukis? Correct. Also, where... you, you just described Alabama. Tuscaloosa is the big city. Uh, I agree that it's the big time in college football. It's not the big city. God, where I could not. Do you know where Southern Illinois is based? Carbondale? Ah, you nailed it. Yeah, I'm so good at this. <laughs> Make that my Jeopardy category. You and Luca need to have, have a college off. I think he'd crush you, to be honest. I don't know. It'd be an interesting battle. Uh, so you related... think you could name every, every Power 5 school what city it's in? Everyone? Maybe not, but uh, the the large, vast majority. So related to... I'll quiz him tomorrow. I'll see, I'll see coaches. where his weaknesses are. <laughs> I think we should do like flashcards or something like do it head to head. Get us together. Speed, speed. Oh, he's better at speed though. He's young. Oh my god! Do not even guess the songs on the radio with him. Yeah, those synapses are firing. Uh, so <laughs> potentially related to Sanceri as safety coach, uh, we have a couple of safeties, Vincent Holmes and Peyton Waters, who have announced they are staying at UW after submitting notifications of transfer. Also, uh, Waters is an early enrollee, like him tackle Paki Finau, a four-star prospect who might have a shot at early playing time with yes. UW's losses on the offensive line. This one is a big deal. Huge. Huge. Uh, Titan Josh Cuevas is, has submitted a notification of transfer. He apparently got in just under the wire as we talked about that 30-day rule involving Jed Fish's hiring last week. Uh, we also learned that tackle Jalen Clem uh, is headed to Arizona State. So that's a that's a bit of a disappointment given his opportunity at playing time. Uh, two incoming transfers for UW. Arizona Edge, Russell Davis II, the latest Wildcat to follow Jed Fish from Tucson. His dad, Russell, played nine seasons in the NFL. Uh, Russell II played 12 games as a true freshman, 11 last season, recording three and a half sacks, two of half of which came in the USC game that uh, Arizona gave the Trojans a scare. He's got two years of remaining eligibility. And then also coming from Arizona of sorts is Juco defensive tackle Bryce Butler, who played at Garden City Community College in Kansas, uh, listed at 6'5", 295, so a little undersized for a nose tackle, but uh, we'll see exactly what the defensive, how the defensive line shakes out under Belichick. Uh, we'll probably see a variety of different fronts this year. That's such a wild sentence to stay under Belichick. <laughs> That's what we're doing. We're, we've united, you know, all of football is coming together right here on Montlake. Well, we'll see what's coming together at in Renton for the Seahawks. Uh, should we start with the Chip Kelly news? I'm not, I'm not even calling this news. It's news that they interviewed him. Fine. Sure. Ben Selak of the Ringer reported Tuesday that uh, Kelly was interviewing Tuesday night. For the offensive coordinator job, we've also heard that they're interested in Ryan Grubb and then Lions passing game coordinator Tanner Engstrand is the other OC 
uh, potential OC candidate that we've heard about thus far? I mean, I want Ryan Grubb more than anything. There's, I they ran a pro style offense at UW. He's proven success basically everywhere he's been. Uh, if it's not Ryan Grubb, and and like, I think Ryan Grubb is so ready for this job, for what it's worth. I think Ryan Grubb is probably ready to be UW's head coach. I don't know. I mean. He's ready. He's more ready to be UW's head coach to me than Seahawks offensive coordinator. I do have some questions. I mean, I, I on the one hand, I think a lot of the innovation schematically in football comes from college rather than the NFL because of the fact that, you know, just the the emphasis on passing, the you emphasis on the spread, true, and the variety. Or is that like a early two thousands perspective. It's just the variety of different offenses. There's so much more diversity with you know, a hundred something FCS teams than there is with 32 NFL teams. Like team people are forced to be more creative because of personnel and just have the opportunity to do it. So I do think so, but there's, you know, there is a difference between the college and the NFL level. And I, I feel a lot better about Steven Belichick coming from NFL to college than I would Ryan Grubb going college to NFL. I suppose I would have questions, but at the same time, I, they've just been so successful with what they've done. And like those players that you were talking about, the shit ton of players who are going to the NFL, you have Roma Dunze, guaranteed first round NFL, first round draft pick. Michael Penix, probably a first round draft pick. Uh, there's offensive linemen. There's Jalen Polk, who's in the mix. Like he was coaching NFL players last year and but calling that's, plays. It's one thing to coach NFL players. It's another thing to coach NFL players against NFL players. But that's, like that's the, the defenses thing. they were facing, like the Texas defense, there are a bunch of NFL players on the defense. Sure. Same with Oregon. You know, look, we don't have to talk about some of the other games. Basically, I don't think any of the times that they had issues was really schematic. I think Michael Penix was just kind of bad in some games. Uh, and He was dealing with bad weather. <laughs> it's good that we don't have to think about that anymore unless the Seahawks draft him. I... Here's the question I would pose to you. If Ryan Grubb was not at UW, if we're talking about, I don't know who the right comparison is because Sark Coles plays at Texas, but if there was like some OC under Sark who was the one who was calling plays and the Husky and the Seahawks were hiring, considering hiring him as their offensive coordinator, would you feel the same way about it? Probably. I don't think I, so. I, I don't know. If you told me, that basically the number one coordinator in all of college sports, offensive coordinator in all of college football, had a chance to be the Seahawks offensive coordinator. I would think that that was a, and ran a pro style offense. That would be a risk that I would want to take. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think you're a little more gung ho on that than I am. I mean, there's obviously the piece of taking Ryan Grubb away from Alabama and Kalen DeBoer. Like, I'm not going to say that there isn't, because that would be fun as hell. So, I, I don't see the value of that. Ryan Grubb also, when he left, like, the way that he left Seattle was, you should like the people who are on your coaching staff. Ryan Grubb left, and I was like, damn, I really like Ryan Grubb. I'm sad that he has to leave. I'm happier that Jed Fish is the coach, but I liked Ryan Grubb, right? Yeah, And it, it felt like he was ready for that job. He's going to get 
assuming things go okay, if he stays at Alabama, he's going to get a very good college job at Alabama. I I guess we'd have to look a little bit more into the history of college coordinators coming to the NFL. I just don't think there is that much history of it. I agree. That's That's part of the reason for concern. But at the same time, if we're talking about the options, I mean, if, if the Seahawks end up with Tanner Engstrom as, which we should talk about his background, as it's so funny that everybody circles back around to Jim Harbaugh one way or another. Everybody yes. circles around to, it's kind of bonkers. Uh, j- just how much the Harbaugh tree is really part of the Seahawks coaching staff right now. Uh, but like, if it's not Ryan Grubb, I would like it to be Tanner Engstrom. And especially being passing game coordinator for that Lions team, when you saw their passing game, it was top notch, right? And it's hard to understand. Like we were getting so granular with coordinators, exactly how much of it was Ben Johnson, how much of it was Tanner Engstrom. But like he clearly had an impact and an involvement in that Lions passing game. He probably also is ready for this job. And if it's one of those two options, I will be excited about it. If it's Chip Kelly, I'm not so sure. I, I guess you could say, like, I'm highlighting the risk going from college to the NFL. There's obviously a risk hiring someone who has never called plays before. I am here to somewhat defend the idea of Chip Kelly as offensive coordinator. I know that his San Francisco defense offense Offense. was underwhelming, and they were they were legitimately bad as last year in Philadelphia. But the reason he got fired as offense head coach in at the Eagles was not necessarily about his offense and the league figuring it out. It was because he was really bad in personnel and he lost that battle with Howie Roseman, who has turned out to generally be very good at managing personnel. And Maybe there was like a Kalen divorce. Situation. also just kind of an asshole. Well, that's, that's certainly possible, but I, I'm not having to deal with him on a daily basis. Yeah, but the players are anyway. Okay. Continue on. Let's see, Philadelphia in 2013, Chip Kelly's first year, they're number two in offensive DVOA. And like, even though there has been a lot of advances in football since then, we're talking about, you know, UCLA was 10th and 11th in offensive FPI with Dorian Thompson Robinson's last two seasons. Like, 78th this, has been, this last year. This has been elite offense when he's had competent quarterback play. But still, to be at 78th, like schematically, a good enough coach, most of these teams at the top and their coordinators are kind of staying up here, right? You look at the Kansas Jayhawks, right? Do they have competent quarterback play? Or is it because Lance Leipold is a good enough coordinator that he made that, right? Liberty was number eight. Like, it's always kind of the same teams, and it's because... You're going to do your Gonzaga thing and then be touting Liberty? I mean, the offense is... It's adjusted for opponents, isn't it? It is. I'm just saying, like, you're Mr. Oh, it, they they get to beat up on weak competition and therefore become good. That's your whole argument. Yeah, but the, the, I, I'm just saying Liberty had a good offense statistically, and UCLA didn't. You're saying you're not sure if Ryan Grubb is ready for this, who was the FPI-wise the sixth best offense in the country, and you're like, Mr. Number 73 is who we want? Even last year with Dorian Thompson-Robinson and Zach Charbonnet and Jake Bobo, they still weren't that good. I, I think, 
11th is pretty good. They're 10th or whatever. They were fine. They were 10th. But UW was 6th. The same. So those are your options right there. I just don't what? think you can look at it like that. I mean, if you look at the correlation between one job to another, if it was that easy, then everyone would always hire the right coach. And they don't because it doesn't translate from one job to the next. And it also doesn't necessarily translate because how much of those ideas are Kalen DeBoer's and how much of them are Ryan Grubbs. I, I, I mean, we probably won't be able to answer that question until they are separated from each other. But I think there's a reality of this. You could say that with a lot of these coaches. Look, we're excited about Mike McDonald as the head coach of the Seahawks. How much of that was John Harbaugh? How much of that was I'm, Mike McDonald? How much I'm of it is Dan cautious. Campbell? I'm... How much of it is Ben Johnson? We don't fucking know. Look, if you could have the coach, if you could go out and hire Kyle Shanahan as your offensive coordinator, you'd hire, hire Kyle Shanahan as your offensive coordinator. These are all calculated risks. If it's That's Tanner and Strick, why you shouldn't it, have such strong Johnson, opinions about one candidate or but the other. The one thing I know is that Chip Kelly has been doing this for a long time, and he hasn't been that good that many times. And that also, Chip Kelly's been a lot of places, hasn't been particularly likable in any of those places. I would much rather have somebody new to the job, similar to Mike McDonald, on offense, who's approaching offense in a more modern way. Tanner Strim, passing game coordinator. That's what we want here. Ryan Grubb, Generally passing offense at the University of Washington. Chip Kelly invent not invented. Chip Kelly popularized the spread running offense. Is that what you want? I mean, if you can run as successfully as Chip Kelly's college that offenses were is, able to run, yes, you should absolutely your run. Teams figured out how to defend that shit. That's why teams don't run it anymore. Your argument is, is that they weren't good enough because they were eleventh. I just like that's a ridiculous argument. Do you think the Dorian Thompson-Robinson's as good a quarterback as Michael Penix Jr.? I don't know. Maybe. Probably. Didn't look very good in the NFL this year. Gotta say. I, we we'll haven't see seen how... Michael Penix Jr. in the NFL. We apples haven't. to apples skill-wise, do I think that Dorian Thompson-Robinson is definitely worse than Michael Penix Jr.? I don't know. I'm not... Also, like, what is your sample size of Dorian Thompson-Robinson in the NFL? One game where he randomly was starting that morning? I... I'm just saying. It was they not. Were, they were 28th the year before then. Like, there just hasn't been a consistent success with Chip Kelly as offensive coach. And there's something about his desperation to get to the NFL that I don't really understand. He must feel like he's going to get fired from UCLA after this year. But it's a little strange to me. Well, I think also it's not wanting to coach in college football anymore. I mean, particularly for someone who doesn't like recruiting that much, do, do we think that Chip Kelly actually likes recruiting that much? I have no idea. I know that I feel like Chip Kelly is the Dan Quinn of coaches during this process. He's he's a consolation prize. Well, should we discuss that element of things? Dan, Dan Quinn element? Well, the Washington coaching search element. Sure. Uh, Diana Rossini and Ben Standing of The Athletic had a piece on Monday... Uh, on Washington's coaching search and reported that the commanders thought they were going to get McDonald until the Seahawks swooped in with more money, implying the leverage of Washington's interest helped McDonald get a six-year contract from the Seahawks instead of the usual five. And look, this is what we were saying the Seahawks should do, and it's awesome if they, in fact, did it. Yeah. In invest money, make, make the hire. I think, I mean, I'm so much more excited about this than I would be if it was even the way that the commanders have kind of like rolled out Dan Quinn, like the, it just feels like they're not excited about it. 
to it feels me, very the, commanders. To me, the Dan Quinn piece would have been more specifically negative in Seattle just because it was like, well, why not keep Pete Carroll? Yes. So I, I look, he may do a great job in Washington. His Cowboys defenses were terrific. Yeah. They're, they're but again, it turns lot. out that having good defenses as a defensive quarter doesn't necessarily mean you have great, great defenses as a head coach. Is he oh, God. Atlanta? Oh, God, Mike McDonald. No. <laughs> uh, but that's why I think it's more important. Like, even Mike the, McDonald is coach. Mike McDonald is not defensive coach. Right. It's more about the f- overall philosophy and the ability to learn and those sorts of things than it is how good was your defense last season, which is, again, why I'm saying why I don't think Chip Kelly would be as terrible a hire as you think it would be. I just don't even want to cheer for Chip Kelly. I don't like Chip Kelly. I, I also don't, don't particularly care for Chip Kelly. You don't care for Chip Kelly either? So what? I like Ryan Grubb. I had never heard of Tanner Enstrom before this process, but I'm down for Tanner, Tanner Enstrom. You know what I mean? So like, You know what the real thing is, by the way? Speaking of the nepotism here. Hmm. Bring back Shoddy. Oh, I would be happy if they brought back Shoddy. There's like, I... I... <laughs> Uh, I just don't. I anything that is related to in or of Oregon in the early two thousands, not interested in. Hard pass, full stop. But let's talk about the last piece here. The one great thing that Maurice Morris, Momo. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm actually okay. Well, what other thought on the off? That's not on this podcast, sir. This is a Maurice Morris <laughs> pro Maurice Morris. So sure. Uh, the Giants reportedly blocked Mike Kafka from interviewing for the offensive coordinator position, which they could do because it was a lateral move. Uh, a bit strange, given that people thought he was maybe going to get fired a week ago. But apparently the Giants are all in on Mike Kafka now. There's something about somebody else wanting the thing that you have that all of a sudden makes it more desirable. It sure does. So we do have some hires for Mike McDonald's staff. Yes, uh, we the, do. The first one being Leslie Frazier. Is oh, I love it. Coach. God, I love Leslie Frazier. I've, I swear to God, I've loved Leslie Frazier forever. He's like, when I love seeing him on the sideline, you know, how he's always like hunched over with the glare in his face. Yeah. I, I, as head coach, I always felt like Leslie Frazier didn't get a fair shake as head coach either. Uh, but having him as part of the organization, he's going to be an awesome part of the organization. So much experience in the NFL. Uh, he's just been a dude that I've cheered for for a long time. Head coach of the Vikings, he's now 64, most recently assistant head coach and defensive coordinator for the Bills from 2017 through 22 before taking last season off. And uh, he intersected with McDonald during his year as Baltimore's secondary coach in 2016. Yeah, I I think that is, I think it's such an incredible hire to have him as part of the staff. You'd and love to get that head coaching experience with the first timer. Yeah, he's definitely somebody who... Mike McDonald can look to who's been in a bunch of places, high leverage situations, right? He's, you know, he's coached multiple playoff games uh, with the bills. He's been there on the sideline. He's been there as the head coach. I think it's pretty exciting to have him, but also just like when they cut to him on the sideline and he's standing with his arms crossed, just like sneering. I can't freaking wait to see it. All right. Former Michigan special teams coach Jay Harbaugh joining the Seahawks as special teams coordinator. Yes, he is. The son of Jim will not, in fact, follow him to the Chargers, as everyone expected. Uh, Jay went to Oregon State. He served as an undergraduate assistant under Mike Riley. (laughs) Oregon State. The one situation I'm okay with the state of Oregon is Oregon State. (laughs) uh, Another Harbaugh connection there because Mike Riley coached Harbaugh as a player 
with the Did Chargers. Really? Yeah. Uh, oh, you didn't mention Tan- Tanner Engstrom or uh, uh, Engstrad. Yes. Yeah. Also, his connection to Jim Harbaugh. That he was at University of San Diego when yes. Harbaugh was there. Way back. Uh, after graduating, Harbaugh joined the Ravens as quality control coach under his uncle John, then followed his dad to Michigan when Jim was hired in 2015, originally as assistant special teams coordinator and tight ends coach, uh, later moved from tight ends to running back, also coached safeties the last two seasons, in addition to becoming the special teams coordinator in 2019. Wolverine special teams ranked just 94th in FPI efficiency last season on route to the national championship, but were first in 2021, third in 2016. So uh, it turns out that like special teams FPI bounces around a lot. <laughs> yeah. Write them off. It was 96 last year. It's Chip Kelly. Uh, <laughs> I I think that uh, it, it's, I don't know why. I assume he probably just wanted to get away from his dad to get out of his dad's shadow. Uh, and so rather than following him to the Chargers, ended up in Seattle. But I think this is an awesome hire for Mike McDonald. All roads lead through the Harbaugh's. I mean, if you, again, you talked about the two pillars of uh, philosophies in the NFL. If there's one steady, not not exactly philosophy in the same sort of way, but the person who outlasted both of those coaches, it is John Harbaugh uh, and the coach who beat UW in the national championship game and is back as a head coach. There's no Carroll's and there's no Belichick's coaching in the NFL, and there are two Harbaugh's. So... So many Harbaugh's. Yeah, after everything. He's, they're like Keith Richards. After everything, there'll be cockroaches and Harbaugh's. Uh, <laughs> and there might be one more. You talked about all the success coming from special teams coordinator to head coach. Maybe there'll be another one. We'll see. Uh, also, Aaron Wilson reported Monday night that the Seahawks will hire Kirk Ovidani, most likely as linebacker coach. Haven't checked, but he's got to be Italian, right? There we go. Ovidani was the inside linebacker coach for the Packers the last five seasons. Oh, after this motherfucker's Italian for sure. Five seasons as linebacker coach in Washington before that. He worked for McDonald during three years as linebacker coach at Georgia from 2011 to 2013. And you will never believe this. You'll it, Just stop me. The nepotism. You'll, you'll never believe this, but his dad, Tom, was a longtime NFL assistant who served <laughs> as the Dolphins defensive coordinator under Mike Shula from... Mike Shula, Don Shula, Mike Shula, <laughs> Don Shula, from 1987 through 1995. Wow. <laughs> the nepotism really runs deep. Peter Engstrand's dad wasn't wasn't a coach, right? <laughs> Chip Kelly, I think he's a self-made man like Jed Fish. Uh, I don't like it. <laughs> Give me a little bit of nepotism. <laughs> there you go. We'll see. I mean, Ryan Grubb, all three of the coordinator candidates. Uh, are are not nepotism candidates. Yes. I feel like it's more NFL. The NFL is a little bit more nepotism. And both, I mean, I guess Brennan Carroll's been in college for a while, but like, this is Stephen Belichick's first time in college. Yes. So there we go. Well, we'll see if by this time, by the next time we record, the Seahawks have an offensive coordinator. Also, potentially a defensive coordinator. Uh, that one, you know, is seemingly a little less important uh, given the fact that Mike McDonald has the defensive background. is going to call plays there, but uh, as he continues to fill out his staff. All right. I'm excited. I, again, you've made it clear. After I, we were just in such a dark place. Literally. That was just never in as dark a place. I am. I was in a dark place. And I, I can tell you the Seahawks came real close to fucking this one up. You can't tell me they didn't. 
if they hadn't been able to hire a McDonald until after the Super Bowl, if they hadn't gotten McDonald. If they hadn't gotten McDonald, what if Washington just made made the offer, pushed it, pushed it harder? Like there was a real shot two weeks ago that things were not going to be looking good. And then all of a sudden the 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 nepotism cloud came right over the city of Seattle and it dumped all of its good nepotism onto us. And it has been a beautiful thing. Uh, I'm still hyped on the Mike McDonald hire. If you had to replace two coaches that ultimately the most legendary coach in Seahawks history, coach who took the Huskies to, and as little credit as I want to give him, coach who took the Huskies to the highest heights since Why? 1991. I, I, no, I'm fucking, no, stop it. This is not, this is a pro Maurice Morris podcast. And this is a pro Kalen DeBoer podcast. You get out of here with this fucking anti-DeBoer shit. You can take that to the. the I don't have to like Kalen DeBoer right now. I guess you do. I do not. In fact, thank you. When you're you, I I said we have this to is, trust Troy Dannon, and is, you said we don't have to trust Troy Dannon. And guess what? I don't have to like Kalen DeBoer this right is now. My you get a moment. Too. You get a moment of being. Yeah, what's mine also? And we can have differing opinions about that. And yeah, I do begrudge Jabbar Muhammad for going to Oregon. God damn it! <laughs> I don't. To be clear, <laughs> have fun not begrudging him, and have fun at Oregon, Jabbar. But the reality is. I could be upset about him leaving after two years in Seattle for a second. Kevin DeBoer did nothing wrong. That's fine. I, I do. The funny thing to me is looking at all the jobs. Like, do you think the people at the University of San Diego have like a like name for Jim Harbaugh about, about quitting? <laughs> no, I think they're probably thrilled that they had Jim Harbaugh and I, were tremendously successful for a I period of time. I love the idea time. of like every single step along the way. The people have like, just hating it's like the Sioux Falls people Sioux Falls are like Kalen defraud <laughs> Sioux Falls seems to have gotten over it based on the watch parties for the Huskies <laughs> in the college football playoff now, now granted that was a, a little different in many levels and they've had more than you know two weeks to get over it but uh, I'm not well. saying that this process could have been handled well but like Kalen DeBoer all things considered didn't handle this process well. Oh, the, the handled the process well is the classic. That motherfucker like, was signed. Oh, I, he, it's not that Alabama I'm, months ago, and he phoned the shit in. You know he did. Come on, he's either a shitty recruiter or he phoned it in. Wait, what does that even mean? And then, wait, I, he, he didn't. He's a shitty recruiter because he only got classes as good as Chris Peterson's that produced all these players that are taking the Huskies to the college football playoff. Maybe individual recruiting rankings aren't actually that important. He did do literally. Kalen DeBoer is probably a good offensive coach. Also, you're the one who is hyped on Will Rogers. And remember <laughs> the the transfers they had incoming who aren't coming in anymore. This is the most asinine take that is I've ever been I've uttered seen, on this I podcast and that bar is high happy with Kalen DeBoer right after he left fine you don't have to be happy for Kalen DeBoer but you don't have you get to say anything negative about him on this podcast Just, it takes a second a, that's how this shit works don't B, you understand you especially right do not get to besmirch the work that he did at the University of Washington that is unacceptable on any level <laughs> Jay Harbaugh shut him down uh <laughs> Just be be happy with where we the, are and where special we teams up. actually were quite good in that. Game. <laughs> uh, you be happy I, with I, where we are. I will eventually been. be fine with Kalen DeBoer. I will. I will. In the same way, I wasn't happy with Sark when he left. We end up in a better position after Sark, and now I fucking love Sark. That's how this shit works. I you, was happy just... with Sark. Okay. That's fine. You can love every coach who came here and left. 
instantly. The moment it happens. Sark was great. He was great for UW long-term. It was great beating him uh, in the college football playoff. I love Coach Sark. He's amazing in every way. But I wasn't happy with him in the moment. And I can wait a second and then be fine with it. I could be annoyed at Kalen DeBoer for a second. There's a difference between it's... being happy with someone and being actively rooting against them and being angry at them. Those are two different things. Oh, I am rooting against him. That's... That's preposterous. That's why. Expensive. Why would I cheer for Alabama anyway? There's I no mean, reason. I grant that you can cheer against Alabama, but Kalen DeBoer individually, again, he did nothing but take UW from a point where they were. You you want to talk about you were in a dark place when you left? You know it was a dark place going four and eight with John Donovan as your offensive coordinator. <laughs> that was a dark fucking place. And you know who showed up and lifted the Huskies out of it? Kalen DeBoer. So if you want to be ungrateful about that, then suit yourself, but not on my podcast. Two two years later, I kind of like Jimmy Lake now. <laughs> <laughs> the right role. <laughs> oh, that note. Uh, okay, fine. Kalen DeBoer had some very good seasons at the University of Washington. You're going to get into the legal ease to appease me. What? Gonna... Oh. No, I'm not. That's, that's fine. I'm not that mad at Kalen DeBoer. I just... Cheering for him to lose. That's fine. I'm rooting against Alabama. I rooted against Alabama every single season that Nick Saban was there. So why would it change now? I'm still going to be cheering against Alabama because they're fucking Alabama. And that's what we do around these parts. And whether Kalen DeBoer is the coach or not, I will still be cheering against Alabama. And I want bad things to happen to them because they're Alabama. Except for Vinny Sinceri. Oh, my guy. <laughs> that's national champion, Vinny Sinceri. Thank you. On that note... Ah, oh, thanks for listening. <laughs> Sometimes you make a mistake. Like starting this podcast. Wow. At least you haven't started the whole podcast and have to go back. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what it really was? It was like, is the time I turned the car around. We had a... <laughs> going to Arby's or Wendy's? I'm pretty confident it was one of those two. I think we were going to Wendy's. So it was it was the it was definitely it what could have been Arby's because it was on Pack Highway. We were going to Pack Highway and not to Burian. I have Burian in my head. I'm pretty sure we were going to Pack Highway. Okay. Katie well, was, was like in the that. car too. We were fighting about what we were gonna listen to on the tape deck. I'm assuming Chris was as well. I think it was the must have been the. What four were of you us. mad about? I don't know. People maybe were talking, yelling too much, and I <laughs> wanted everyone to quiet down. It's truly one of my most <laughs> old man moves. Wanted everybody to quiet down. <laughs>